Ben, I know we're about to do a great extra episode. But as you can tell from my voice, I'm about to launch into oh, no. <laughs> a great question about our next best of the best episode. You'll never believe this, Ben. I mean, I don't even know what to do about this, and I actually really need your help. <laughs> I just see your sad face. I'm ready. So in season five, I went back earlier today and listened to the end of the year listener appreciation jubilee back and this is from uh i want to say 2015 yeah i I believe and we did something that's a little bit tough for me to know what to do when it comes to these best of the best episodes because you're you're trying to say the winner right yeah i for every best of the best it's the winner of best episode of the year right but in 2015 we lumped the dante trilogy together and that one super episode are you serious? You want yeah. me to put? I mean, I don't know how long back each of those to back episodes to back. Are. Is that I, that can't be? That's got to be it. I think we should have three episodes. No, we can't have because I need more time for the rewatch. Let's just do one for now then. This just Inferno. Uh, back to back to back. People want super episode. I you they, know they can listen to the intro and then go find them individually if they want. That but might be a three-hour episode. I don't people know. People want super episode. You're, you're lying. You just no, this is true. Are you just trying? You just need more time. I, no, I mean, we've, ne- t- we've never done a super episode before. Well, I mean, our old, first season one was like not every episode like was this. A- not like this. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can. I can't even get a good feel for how long each of these episodes are. I'll like just go ahead and name 30 them. Thirty minutes. They're not thirty minutes. Are you serious? Well, I, I don't know. Probably. Let's we just a- did like sixteen hours on Moby Dick. We should do a super sized Moby Dick episode. Just with everything all together. <laughs> okay, so you're saying you want the best of the best part five to be Three the hours, Dante yeah. or like what is, what is the Dante called? trilogy. That's what we call that yeah. on the episode. Okay, but is it or should we call it the Divine Comedy? No, we should call it the Dante trilogy. I'm gonna pause the recording for a second and just see how long we're talking about here. I'll be right back. All right, if it's under five hours, we do it. Oh, it's definitely gonna be under five. I think it's gonna be three hours. Perfect. All right, listeners, we're back. Ben, this is going to be way, way too long. Listen to this. No, it's it's great. And so episode 341, Encircling the Inferno, one hour, 19 minutes. Perfect. Episode 351, Prancing Through Purgatorio, one hour, nine minutes. Okay. And the finale, episode 377, Pondering Paradiso, one hour, 26 minutes. So it's four hours of fun. Ben, no. No, we got a super episode. Don't make me do this. Do, uh, do it. Do it. I... If, the people want it. Tell me, what are the pros to doing it this way? We've I mean, never had a four-hour episode of the Sci-Fi Christian. That's number one. Number two, this whole series is pointless because these episodes are already available in their normal format for people to just go download. So the only point of it is for you to pad our episode. So numbers. I, I want to say, in this, ca- I know that you think that I'm trying to get to 1,000 by the end of the year. That may or may not be true. In this case, I'm, I wouldn't recommend doing three for that reason, I just think that's too much for one episode. No, but people will love it. They they want to consume the whole the whole meal. And if they want to break it up, it's already broken up. 
this is truly offering something new. Remember, that was your original argument about time loops, was that it's not the same. We're cutting out news and all of that. Yeah. Well, that's been out the window for a while. But this is truly offering something new, the Frankenstein monster of sci-fi Christian episodes. Oh, also, keep in mind, I have to go and listen to these episodes before we put them out into no, the air. No, you don't. Well, you know, I, I check for, like, digital glitches. And you just, know that I didn't swear in these because you've already published them. I'm not worried about editing you. I'm saying I just like to make sure the episode is as clean as I can make it, digitally speaking. Uh, so You're going to have to do that anyway, whether we do three episodes or one. That That is true. I just... In fact, it'll be longer I will have for to you do, because we'll do three different intros. You're actually saving time. No, I'm not saving way. time. Not that much time because I could get them out more quickly. For example... I don't know if I have time over the next week to listen to a four-hour episode. Well, just just take a chance. Nobody else is going to listen to it either. <laughs> this is horrible. No. All right. Frank, I, all right. Yeah, I'm do ready. It. You have to do the intro then. All Are right. Ready? Uh, it is episode 300. Nope. Sorry. Episode 968. Episode 968. The best of the best. Part five. The Dante trilogy. All of it. It's I, like... Like when we did the Lord of the Rings marathon. I do kind of think this is a bad idea. <laughs> Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian Bring New Theology at Warp Speed. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm Ben DeVona. I would think it was a bad idea if I thought anyone listened to these, but they're time loops. Are you serious? People listen to this. No, they don't. Just I think of all the people that have discovered us. That's Maybe true. they discovered us in 2017. No, this isn't a bad idea, though. This is a great idea because it gets the whole Dante trilogy in one place. This is some of our finest work. It is one of the best things we've ever done on this show. And it deserves to be immortalized in a super episode. Let's just talk about it. So back in 2015, I can't remember how the conversation went. It was, was it Ben encouraging me right then? Or was it over the years he encouraged me to check out the Divine Comedy? And we finally got to it. But we did a, uh, you know, of course, the Divine Comedy is broken into Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And we gave each of those things each of those books, their own episode. I love the Divine Comedy. It's so It's become good. one of my favorite. You know, I I was almost going to say books, but it's not really. It's it's, it's not exactly. Book. Is it a book? Would you yeah, call it that? You wouldn't want to say it's your favorite novel. It's not a novel. Okay, but it's a book. Yeah. Would you? It's it's not the same though as like, uh, why is Milton's book Paradise Lost? It, yeah, where that's almost an epic poem in some ways. Or yeah, poem. this is an epic poem. So okay, that's what I was going to ask. Is yeah. this an epic poem? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I, I'll mention this on the show that you're about to listen to if you make it through the four hours. But uh, it, I, I don't know how to other things explain it. It felt like a spiritual experience reading this, and it's gonna feel like a spiritual experience listening to this. There's, <laughs> you're gonna be, you're gonna be, uh, yeah, touching the transcendent while right. listening. No, it's gonna be like. Sorry, I'll go back to saying what I was saying about the spiritual experience. I, of course, the Bible. Let's just get that out there. Yeah. The Bible is its own thing, God-inspired. The only book I've ever read that felt, yeah, almost as I mean I don't know I'm not trying to be silly That's with Bible-y. this. I don't know how to say this without it just seeing almost like sacrilegious. But uh, this book made me feel sometimes almost how the Bible makes me feel. I, I agree completely. Uh, so, and I would say this might be a surprise, but Moby Dick also gave me a similar feeling. Yeah, where it was like the writing style is. The, the Holy Trinity of books. Do you, you think so? It's like the Bible, the <laughs> yeah. Divine Comedy, Moby Dick. I mean, the Bible can be the Father. Yes. In that Trinity. Who's the... So the Divine Comedy is... Yeah, the Son. The Son. Yeah, for sure. Moby the, Dick's the... The Holy Whale. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, all right, Ben, I'll just dive in. This is going to be a mammoth undertaking if you do make listen, it to this. You, don't you ever listen to Joe Rogan episodes? I do not. They're all like three hours. They're great. Okay, well. And no. he's the most popular podcaster in, in, in America. Okay. All right. Here we go. The Divine Comedy in three parts. Do-do-do. Episode 341, Encircling the Inferno. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DeVoto, and we are back. Can you believe this episode exists? I read... You did? I read read medieval poetry. Medieval poetry. Wow. Uh, so I don't think you would have made it through the Inferno four years ago when we started the Sci-Fi Christian. A lot has changed. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a much more avid reader than I was. And I mean that as a compliment. Ago. No, of I, course. Yeah. Of, of course. <laughs> what else could it be? <laughs> so, uh, so you've read Dante. Well, let me just say this. Thanks, it's exciting. Thanks to Ben, we and the Sci-Fi Christian community have been reading through the Divine Comedy by yeah. Dante. Uh, last name. Allegheny. Allegheny. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he's taking us through this through Lent. So if you haven't checked out our website. Well, uh, we're actually going, going through the whole Easter season because we're going to yes. read through most of Purgatorio uh, by the end of Lent and then from the last part of Purgatorio to the end of Paradiso by the end of Easter. Right. So go to thesciphachristian.com. You can find all of Ben's videos every Friday. He posts one reflecting on that week's readings. We also have a reading schedule so you can stay up to date. And right. I... On one hand, I really had to stick with it and make sure I made this a priority. But on the other hand, it it wasn't like a, a difficult read. I yeah. mean, it it reads pretty. This is a translation, of course, from the original, but it reads well. I would have had a hard time reading the original too. <laughs> yeah, that would have taken some time, largely on account of my lack of knowledge about medieval Italian. So I just want to say this: uh, if you've if you're just hearing this episode and you hadn't started yet, but you still want to jump on, it wouldn't take you that long to catch up. You'd probably have to. You know, you'd have to stick with it for a few hours, but I, yeah. I, I really think that this is the type of book you could read in one sitting. That's true. I mean, you probably wouldn't want to, yeah. But give it a couple, two, three, four days, you can get it done. Less well, than the a schedule week. eases up now for reading. Oh, it does. Yeah. So I got through the hard part. You got through the hard part. Wow. Yeah. So thank you for your hard work on that. I've been enjoying your thank videos. You, thank you. Uh, I have to be honest though, You've because I, well, I was on vac- them. I was on no, I was on vacation last week. Yeah. Um, and so I haven't had a chance to watch last Friday's, and I meant to do it before we recorded today, and I just didn't have a chance. So, right. But I, I've enjoyed the, what I have well, seen. Thank you. And you do have sort of a, a pastoral slash devotional aspect to them. Yeah. So, but the devotional reading of Dante. Yeah, I love it. I mean, someday, and certainly won't be anytime soon because I'm too busy, but maybe after I finish, you know, going through the Summa. In mm-hmm. five years or so, uh, have you been sticking with that? Yeah, uh, the videos and everything. Yeah, because I'm, I'm I like the, what that uh, page on Facebook, which is called Reading the Summa, Reading the Summa. But I haven't seen updates on through Facebook oh, yeah. every couple of days. Really? Yeah, go out there right now. I'll have to go check it out. But maybe when I'm done with that, uh, yeah, I mean, sometime in my podcasting career, I'm going to do a canto through canto reading of Dante over a couple of years or something like that. But when that will be, 
I don't know. That's you know, long time from now. I was gonna wait, but maybe now is a good time. So there's lots of terminology in here that I wasn't familiar with. And I, if you want to wait, that's fine. No, no, uh, whatever. But, I mean, I've I've given a lot of my thoughts in the videos, and all some stuff to share here. Uh, but I want to hear a lot from you because you're a newbie on this. Well, definitely, and, and you did email me th- those. Uh, kind of thoughts about where this episode should go but you have so much to offer the audience i i want you to even if it's repeating things in the video just right feel free to do that so uh for a newbie here's some questions there's a terminology like canto for example yeah uh and you know they talk about the different circles of hell there's other, like bull i'm gonna get this wrong but like belogia malabolges uh can you kind of help us know why they separate things first out canto what does that mean exactly um i don't know it's precise technical definition but you know it's kind of like a a division in poetry type of thing okay kind of like verse one verse two and i just opened up to a random one here and it uh so i've got circle seven round three is that just supposed to be geographical to us or what does circle seven round three mean well you know maybe i thought uh, one thing we could do maybe to start this off and it might answer some of the questions would be to just kind of quickly go through the geography of the inferno because i'm sure we'll be referring to that and especially people who haven't read uh i've got it up in front of me oh this word right here yeah i know bologia yeah bologia but, but is that the same as yeah. melbolge yeah uh bologia means pocket or pouch or hole or something like that and male is evil or bad oh, so like evil so, pocket? yeah those are the evil pockets or the evil uh, pouches yeah. okay okay that's cool and so we'll get to those in circle eight but i thought maybe it'd be helpful you know for people who aren't super familiar with dante and if you're not familiar with dante at all the divine comedy is his tour in three parts through hell purgatory and paradise the inferno of course being part one through hell uh, told in a hundred cantos, total thirty-three each in Purgatorio and Paradiso, thirty-four in Inferno. So I thought maybe I've got this map up in front of me, the same one I sent you. Maybe I'll just run quickly through yeah. uh, the divisions here. All right. Okay. So it starts out, you know, outside hell. We have a couple cantos there, and then Dante goes. He, he's met by Virgil, who is the poet of the Aeneid. Where if you know, it's kind of a good timing. We did the Watership Down episodes right before this. Yeah. I know, and I didn't know until you told me that that yeah. there was a connection. So we just we we talked quite a bit about Virgil and the Aeneid in there, uh, you know, and they go through Hell's Gate, which has the famous "Abandon all hope, ye who enter here," which I think almost everybody's heard in some context or whatever. That was my pick for the title for this episode, but I think "Encircling the Inferno" was actually a yeah. more specific good title. That's right. Uh, no, I mean, that, that would have been a good title, too. Uh, and then they're they're in kind of the vestibule of hell, which is really the first division. So there's nine circles of hell, which is another term you've probably heard, even if you aren't familiar with it being part of Dante. Uh, but before we get to any of the circles, there's the vestibule of hell, where people who are not – who never chose a side in life – are are there so they never really did anything good but they never did anything bad uh dante places angels who in satan's rebellion didn't join god or the devil there and they kind of run around chasing a banner that goes here and there and there um the different punishments in the inferno are kind of outward symbol symbols of what the sin is inward Mm -hmm. uh some of them are tougher to decipher but some of them are pretty obvious in that one. You know, they're just t- chasing a banner this way and this way and this way. They have no loyalty whatsoever. Well, they are, meanwhile, stung by wasps and hornets for all eternity. So that's horrible. They then cross the river Acheron. Uh, they're ferried there by the uh, ferryman Charon. 
who's a creature of Greek mythology. That's right. Yeah. Which there's lots of Greek mythology in here. Then we get to Circle One, which is Limbo. And Limbo's a pretty dandy place. I mean, of, of everything else that we talk about, <laughs> yeah. pretty relaxed. Yeah, so everybody's pretty chill in Limbo. Limbo is where the virtuous pagans or unbaptized uh, virtuous go. And they're just kind of hanging out there. It's a happy place. I mean, they're, Dante tells us that they're... They sigh in lamentation rather than scream in agony uh, is is kind of the image he invokes. Their punishment is that they don't have the hope of heaven. They're stuck there. Mm. But they're not being punished other than that. So you've got like Homer there, Virgil lives there, you know, all sorts of good people. So what do you think about that? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if there was some way for them to... Yeah. Like, is there hope beyond hell? You never know. That might be the... That might be what we discuss next week. Yeah. Um, th- this is also where Dante tells us that the Old Testament patriarchs or people of faith, like you know Adam, Rachel, Abraham, were all hanging out until Jesus died on the cross and then came and let them go. And probably Virgil and Homer and all those guys were like, finally, <laughs> wait, 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 come back. <laughs> All right, so everything's handy dandy there, and you're thinking, "Well, this inferno place not so bad, not so bad." I could, I might even vacation here, better than Disney World. Uh, and but then you, as you leave Circle One, you meet this guy named Minos, and mm. Minos is not a pleasant guy. He has these kind of tentacle things, and he wraps them around you. And the number of times he wraps them around you indicates what circle you're going down to, oh, and things get worse depending on how far down you go. So up on top, we have, in Circle 2, we have Lust. And the Lustful are blown about in this kind of windstorm for all eternity, symbolizing the way that Lust just kind of makes you go here and there without self-control. Next, we go down to Circle 3 with Gluttony. Uh, and the Gluttons, and this isn't just people who are, you know, um, eat too much. It's mm-hmm. people who, who give... Uh, an inordinate amount of attention to earthly, you know, physical pleasures or physical physicality mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, so they are kind of wallowing in this muddy filth while rain and snow beats down upon them. And it's not just rain. It's like almost sewage rain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, that's kind of the image he invokes because he, he says like rain and snow, but he also says it stinks. Yeah. Like it's, and the, the three-headed dog Cerebus is there uh, hanging out with them. Next down, we get the greedy, the wasters and hoarders. And this is something Dante does a lot of, where he sets up two opposite sins, but that originate from the same place. So you have people who are hoarders, you know, like they, they well, everybody knows what hoarders are, mm-hmm. thanks to the wonderful but- reality shows that we've got. And then you have people who are wasters, you know, as soon as you get a, a dollar, you spend it. And these two groups kind of push around these big metal stones, and then they push them into each other, each trying to crush one another. Uh, not a great place to be. Next, we have Wrathful, which is the River Styx. And it's kind of this swampy place. Uh, the Wrathful has two types of sinners in it. It has people who are you know, violently wrathful, and they're tearing each other apart on the surface. And then it has the sullen, those people who are kind of the emotionally repressed wrathful, and they sink down to the bottom, and they're just kind of bubbling up. All right, so then in between circles five and six, we get to the wall of dis, 
which is closed to Dante and Virgil. They can't get it open. They have to phone upstairs for help. That's right. They call for angels. Yeah. It's and isn't before that happens. It, it this is where it starts to get kind of bad, right? Is yeah. this the, I think this is the scene and stop me if I'm wrong where Virgil is this where he has to protect Dante? Yeah, it, so this is bad. Yeah, so uh the harpy show or the fury no, show up. Oh, wait, was it? And Medusa, Medusa. the Gorgon. Medusa, yep. right. Yeah, so uh, first Virgil says to Dante, you have to close your eyes, otherwise you'll be turned to stone. But he doesn't necessarily trust that Dante's yeah. going to listen, so he actually puts his eye, her hands over Dante's eyes. Yeah. And everything's going crazy. Big fight happening right at the wall here. And then finally the angel comes, and it just seems like once the angel comes... He's contemptuous of that. Yeah, he's like, uh, okay, well, here you go. Yeah. And like all the demons scatter. Right. Yeah, and John Ciardi even makes the point that, and I, I like his terminology, he touches the gate with his little rod and springs right open. It's like, it's almost, and I don't know if that's reflected in the original Italian, but it gives the sense that there's just no effort involved yeah. when the angel comes down. And, and that's intentional because Virgil symbolizes uh, human reason, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the angel symbolizes grace, God's providence and everything. So against evil like this, human reason is powerless to do anything but kind of cower in the corner and protect mm-hmm. itself, whereas grace, you know, it's just it, – it doesn't even have any time for this evil. Instantly conquers it. it. I mean, it also is a good contrast between how Dante views God's almightiness over yeah. evil, which, you know, in the moment, this evil seems almost all-powerful. But then the angel representing God – uh, comes through and it's no problem at all. Exactly. And, and I mean, we'll talk more about this, but uh, Dante's theology seems pretty good here. I yeah. mean, he, he sticks close to the Bible. Uh, there's biblical characters that show up. I do like the mixture of Greek mythology, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about how he sure. balances his biblical beliefs with these, you know, antithetical Greek mythology yeah. beliefs. Yeah, Greek mythology. I guess they probably didn't yeah, call it yeah. Greek mythology back then. Right. <laughs> well, they might have. I yeah. don't know. Uh, so now they're inside the walls of Dis, which is not a pleasant place to be. And you're right. This is where things get worse. One last note. Uh, on the outside of the wall of Dis, uh, those sins were classified as passive sins. Right. And once you enter through this gate... You're now entering into active sins. Exactly. Exactly. And you'll notice uh, when you get to Purgatorio, um, it's kind of the inverse of this where the worst sins are on the bottom. And, for example, lust is the last terrace in Purgatory. Uh, And the reason for that is that Dante sees something like that as more of a corruption of a good or too much of a good or something like that. It's closer to the good of love, Uh, whereas as we get down and down further, it's like almost inhuman sins so uh no dante is coming at this from a catholic perspective yeah uh so when specifically gets, uh uh he's a thomas so it's been called the summa inverse in reference to the summa theologica so when we get to purgatory he's considering those and i haven't read any of it yet i wanted to keep myself pure for this right, episode right, right. uh but he's talking about christians who still had sin in their lives and so they are able eventually to move to paradise yeah everybody in purgatory uh, or really everybody from the point we leave hell in uh in the divine comedy is guaranteed salvation it's just a matter of time okay gotcha yeah. all right all right so then in once we get through the wall of dis we go to circle six with heretics who are being burned alive in their tombs now if you for those of you keeping score at home this is the first time we've seen mention of fire in hell which is a, a bit odd uh do you know why fire is so rare in dante's hell no i don't know why well, Dante saves fire for those who most directly offend God. 
Okay. So heretics will do it. We'll see it again in, in Circle 7 with the violent against God. Um, we see it in Circle 8 with the fraudulent counselors, which that one doesn't fit that quite as well, though uh, I'm trusting the commentators when they say, yes, that's the reason there. Uh, okay, so this is the first occurrence of fire. And then we go down to Circle 7. This is where what you were saying, Matt, that you start to get the further subdivisions. So Circle 7 is three subdivisions or three rounds. Okay. And uh, so Circle 7 is all about violence. And you can do violence against others. You can do violence against yourself. Or you can do violence against God slash nature. Uh, Why do you think he couples those two, God and nature? Uh, well, he, I think Virgil goes on a discourse about that at one point. Okay. Uh, and essentially the logic is that nature closely imitates God. You know, that God is art and beauty and nature follow on, uh, follow directly from the divine character. And they're kind of like, I don't know if he would put it in these terms, but they're a, a mode of beauty, a mode of living, a mode of the divine accessible to, um, people purely through the human experience or through human reason, kind of like you know, Paul saying that none are without excuse because mm-hmm. of God showing himself in nature. It's okay. that type of thing. So violence against others, you know, this is where you get your Hitlers or whatnot would be down there. And they get to stand in the river, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Phlegathon or something like that. Um, and they, the Phlegathon is a river of blood, and it gets deeper. Isn't it blood and water? Or sorry, blood and fire? I don't know if there's fire there. Uh, because I think it's boiling blood. Oh, you're right. Yeah, boiling. Oh, it's worse. Uh, so they stand in the boiling blood and fire. and But it, it's it's got a, she, a, dalla, a dallow end, a shallow end, and a deep end. And if you're really bad, you get to stand in the deep end. If you're really good, you get to stand in the shallow end. But wherever you stand, there's centaurs shooting arrows at you. So all in all, I don't know who comes out better on that one. Uh, Next up, you have uh, violence against self. These would be primarily suicides. And and Dante says, you know, the logic here is that people who uh, commit suicide disdain their own bodies. And so they're robbed of their bodies for eternity. And they are actually trees. Yeah, they become trees in hell. He, I believe, uh, besides suicides, there's also this phrase squanderers. Yes, people are just kind of wasteful with okay of their lives. Yeah, maybe. of their lives, and the the trees are chewed on for all eternity by the harpies, yeah. and then they regrow. Uh, that's nice and horrifying. Endless, yeah. yeah. Then we have the violent against God, and um, there's three groups in this round. You have the blasphemers who have to lie on their backs on this burning hot desert while fire rains down from the sky upon them for all eternity. You have sodomites, which Dante would see not only as homosexuality, but any type of sexual perversion, um, and they get to wander around. And if they stop wandering around, if they stop moving, they have to stand still for something like a hundred years, I think it is. So so keep on wandering. Keep, keep walking. <laughs> Don't stop. And then there are the usurers, uh, you know, which Dante would think of as, you know, people who loaning money and interest. But I think our modern understanding of that would be more loan sharks, people like that. And again, mm-hmm. it's a sin against nature. The logic there is a bit unfamiliar for us. I don't know that I could recite it, but Dante gets into it and they get to sit on the sta- on the sand. Well, the, again, the fire rains down upon them for all eternity. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> Next, we move to Circle 8. This is where we get the evil pouches, the 10 Malabolges. Um, 
first you have the panderers or seducers who get to walk around in a circle where they are whipped by demons. Next, you have the flatterers who, to put it delicately, uh, get to swim in a river of feces for all eternity. Mm-hmm. Which, all in all, you know, that's not the worst punishment down here. Like, if you had to choose a top five, I think that would be in my top five places to be. Because at least you're not being killed or anything. Um, not that any of them are that pleasant. Next, you have the Simoniacs, who are people who sell holy office for money. So, uh, you know, I'm the Pope or something. You want to be a bishop? Well, you give me $500, you can be a bishop. You know, that type of thing. They are upside down in baptismal fonts with fire below them that's scorching them. And then when the next sinner comes along, they get sucked down the tube where they just kind of lay down there and are burned for all eternity. Not only that, but if that wasn't bad enough, their feet (laughs) are also ablaze with fire and uh, oily flames. Right. Next, you have uh, astrologers, magicians, people who, you know, tried to see the future. Well, you tried to look forward. Now you get to look back. Their heads are turned around and they have to... Twisted. W- yeah, they're twisted around. You have to walk in a circle. And you think, well, all in all, that's not so bad. Yeah, but the, the circle that they're walking around in has all sorts of stones and potholes and everything so that they are constantly tripping because they can't see where they're going. No, I think they... I, I could be wrong about this, but I think they're walking backwards over and over in the circle for all time. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they'd be... Well, I guess they'd be tripping in the sense that it's not easy to walk backwards, but oh, I they, thought, can, I, they can I, see where they're going because they're walking... Oh, are they walking backwards? Yeah. I thought they were walking forwards and couldn't see where they were going. Uh, I, I guess I could be wrong. You're, well, you're I don't an know. expert. I don't know. I mean, you got to get your sins and punishments yeah. straight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Next, you have the grafters, or people who you know are bribers, political bribes. They're in boiling oil, uh, but that's not all, folks, because there's also demons with fla- with hooks and pitchforks and all sorts of tools there to keep them in the oil. And if you bob your head up and the wrong guy is hanging out, they pick you out of the oil, tear your flesh apart, and throw you back in. So that's fun. Next, you have the hypocrites who are wandering around uh, with these kind of golden habits on. Well, they've they've got this kind of cheap gold on the outside, but inside they are um, extremely heavy, immeasurably heavy, made of steel. And they have to walk around with this. But the guy who gets the real short end of the stick here is Caiaphas, who is the high priest Mm -hmm. who helped crucify Jesus. Well, guess what? He gets to be crucified, too. He's lying on the ground on his cross, and everyone walks over him as they go around and around and And around. And when Ben says everyone, he means for all eternity, everybody that enters this area has to walk over Caiaphas. And remember, they're all it's not just people walking on you. It's people wearing these immeasurably heavy outfits where they can barely move because of how heavy they are. So that part was messed up. Yeah. Well, (laughs) that part was messed up. There are lots of messed up parts. (laughs) Next, you have the thieves who they get bitten by serpents turn into a pile of ashes, then their bodies reconstruct. Sometimes they kind of morph into each other. The idea is they stole from others, so they have their image stolen from them. Uh, and, well, okay. This is actually one of the more interesting ones to me, yeah. because uh, you had mentioned already that they, uh, once they get bitten, they basically spontaneously combust, but then they regenerate, but they regenerate yeah. painfully. Right. Yeah, uh, they, they're, they're not doing well. 
Then you have the fraudulent counselors who walk around in a flame. So they're just kind of burning alive. It's interesting, too, if you uh, you'd sent me a list of all these different types of sins yeah. and, with a description, but then also people that could fit under that category. Yeah. And this one had Ulysses right. listed there. Right. So that's... Uh, because Dante is a strong partisan for Rome. And by being a partisan for Rome, he's by extension a partisan for the Trojans. Whose idea was it to pack that horse uh-huh. full of little Greeks out there? Yeah, it's 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 Ulysses or Odysseus. So Dante, not a fan of yeah. Odysseus. Okay. Yeah. Then you have the sowers of scandal and schism, who they walk around and for the most part, most of their journey is relatively pleasant until they get to the front of the line where there's a demon with a massive sword who hacks them to pieces and then as they make their way around the rest of the circle they also regenerate until they're back up at the front of the line is this the one where they have to carry their own heads around yes so yes this is the guy who's carrying his own head is that, is that everybody's punishment, or is that just some people? It, well, it depends on how it depends on how your body's hacked apart yeah, okay. when you get up to the sword. Oh my gosh! It, it just, yeah, because there was a. It yeah. was said that the, uh, when they got here, that the guy was carrying his own head around like a lantern. Yes, and then he holds it up to talk to them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, it gets less horrifying and violent once we get into Purgatorio. Just yeah. Yeah. Uh, then a final Malabolge, Malabolge 10, we have falsifiers, you know, people who falsify medals, alchemists, coins, identity thefts, liars, all that good stuff. And they have all sorts of horrible, incurable diseases. Then there's the giants who are hanging out in circle nine and they're kind of, uh, sticking up, uh, so that they are taller than, the ledge for circle nine. So I, I don't know. I'm not explaining that very well, but they're standing in circle nine, but as they're coming to them at the bottom of circle eight, like that circle eight goes up to their waist yeah. or something like that. So these are, are these the giants and Titans of Greek mythology? I think some of them are, but like he also puts Nimrod there who is, who built the tower of Babel mm, okay. in the Bible, who isn't mentioned well, as a Nimrod's giant. not in the Bible though. Is he? Yeah, he is. Hmm, okay. Yeah. It's a great hunter. Let me. I'll go find them real quick. Wait, so are these Nephilim? You think? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'm gonna go find out information yeah, nah. on Nimrod. So, but then you know, the, some of the giants are actually pretty nice. They're just there because they're giants, which is kind of a raw deal. And they get picked up and put down into Circle Nine, which is cold. It's pure ice. Circle Nine once again four divisions. You can uh, and everybody in Circle Nine until we get to the very end is buried in the ice and. Uh, they're further down in the ice depending on how bad you are. So they're all traitors. They have traitors to kin, to country, to guests, and then to benefactors. Benefactors are completely in the ice. Mm-hmm. And then we get Satan. Oh, let me just say this real quick before we move on to Satan. The, I think it's interesting. Somebody pulled that clip out of context. <laughs> you, you mentioned that there isn't a lot of fire in the total story of the Inferno. Yeah. Um, and the deepest part of hell where you would think maybe it would be the biggest fire actually has a frozen lake right so uh, i can tell you what's going on with that yeah go ahead so well uh so that that as you'll find out or maybe it's already mentioned at the end of inferno that's actually the river lathe uh which is flowing out of purgatory into hell 
Okay. And the river lathe is where the sinners wash their faces as they enter purgatory. So it's kind of a baptismal font. Okay. Know, so it's actually, imagine the metaphor Dante's establishing is this river that's just carrying all the grime and dirt of sin down into hell. Uh. And then Satan is down there beating his bat-like wings because he's got a big hairy body and he's got wings and three heads and everything. And so by his act of defiance that he's always trying to get out of there and fly himself out of there, he keeps himself frozen in mm. the river for all eternity. Uh, okay, so you mentioned purgator- Purgatorio. Is that yeah. Right? Okay, Purgatorio. When this first came out, when it was first released by Dante, yeah. I know it's not like today's publishing world. So, <laughs> did, Well, should we just finish describing well, Satan said, first? Just quick question. Oh, okay. Was yeah. this released as a total package, or did he release first Inferno, then Purgatorio, I think he probably finished the whole thing first. Okay. I'm not sure, though. Why do people read them separately, then? Why is there a division? Well, he put the division in. Like, I on Goodreads, I marked Red Inferno, but right. was that a cheat? Should this really be considered one piece? No, I mean, I think at this point, diff- different translators have only translated one part, too. Okay. You know, you kind of think of it like Lord of the Rings. Okay. All right, stop. Uh, uh, sorry about that. I'll, no, that's I okay. shouldn't have stopped you. No, uh, no. So, now we so get to go the, ahead. Talk about Satan. This is the grand finale here. So Satan has three heads. He's a grotesque mockery of the Trinity. Each head is chewing alive an infamous traitor from history. In the two heads on the side are Brutus and Cassius, who are uh, Caesar's betrayers and chief assassins. And they're facing head out. So their lower part of their body is being chewed by Satan, and they've got it relatively good compared to their partner, Judas Iscariot, who is head in Satan, and so he's up to his waist in Satan. He's being chewed alive for all eternity. He's naked from the waist down, and Satan is clawing the flesh off of his body for all eternity. It's horrific. Probably wasn't worth those 30 pieces of silver there, Judas. He didn't even keep it. <laughs> he should have at least bought himself something nice. Ah, uh, man. And so then Virgil and Dante climb down Satan's hairy body through the center of the earth, up in, out, out the other side where Satan's legs are sticking up into the air because he fell from heaven down uh, into the inferno. So the whole thing has been upside down. That's right. And they're out and ready to tackle purgatory. So that was not a quick summary. No, but that man, yeah, great summary, Ben. And it's it's a horrific book, like we've said. It's it really captures your attention, though. Even though you like you said, medieval poetry doesn't seem like just on right. face value on the surface, it doesn't seem like this is going to be a great read. It really was actually quite interesting as you're reading through it. Yeah. It doesn't I, seem like it's going to be a great read till you actually start reading it and realize this is intense stuff. I and and sometimes I mean I may be overdoing it here so stop me if you think this is crazy, but it almost felt like even though this is not biblical. Right. Yeah, there's aspects of the Bible in here but obviously th- there's no description of hell like this in the Bible. Right. Um it felt <laughs> That would be funny. It felt like a spiritual experience to read through it. Yeah. And I, I not, I mean, not exactly like I'm doing biblical devotions, but it felt different than just reading a book for fun. Yeah. What I mean, do you have a similar experience? Oh, I, I, I completely agree. And I think that's Dante's intention. Obviously, this is a work of scholarship. Right. And Christians, non-Christians, you know, theists, atheists uh, are all drawn to this work because of its, its brilliance uh, on a number of levels. 
And of course, theology isn't the only reason he's writing this. I mean, you, I'm sure, caught all the different references to like the whites and the blacks, these two political parties in mm-hmm. Florence. You know, there's a lot of politics going on in the Inferno. It also feels like, well, this is what you're saying. He um, puts a lot of his own life experiences into it. So even yeah. though Dante is a character, he, he made a character out of himself. Right. He's. We can also see some of his real thoughts and feelings and maybe even things he's trying to work through going on inside this this uh, narrative yeah absolutely i mean beatrice was a real person uh, a woman that he loved and she died and so part of this is him working out his own private guilt and and uh issues over that and part of it is his desire for revenge against those who have wronged him politically part of it is his critique of corruption in the church uh but a lot of it is theology like you said and i think that well it is a work of scholarship um and and deserves that place in the scholarly world that it has reading this from a spiritual perspective which is what i've been trying to do in the videos Mm -hmm. is how dante would have wanted it to be read you know he 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 believed i don't I, when i say he believed i don't think he meant that this was like you were saying this isn't a literal depiction of hell or purgatory or paradise or anything but he believed those are real places mm-hmm. and he believed in a real afterlife and he believed in real judgment and so i think you know one of the levels this this poem operates on especially in the inferno is start taking your sin seriously yeah cuz <laughs> look what happens if you don't that's absolutely true yeah. because just like you're saying these are not necessarily the real punishments that you'll suffer but you should be taking your sin seriously yeah exactly uh one of the chilling parts of this that that i I think gets into some of the theology of hell and i don't want to preempt our discussion next week when we talk about hell beyond dante um but the sense that the the line i find just chilling i don't know it by heart but it's it's in when they're in the vestibule of hell and he's looking out and there's these seas of people waiting to board the ferry boat and he says something to the effect of they're terrified, but it's what they want. Like there's a desire drawing them mm. forward. Uh, and it's a really horrifying thought, but but it's part – it's one famous way of, of understanding hell that runs throughout Christian theology is the sense that it, we put ourselves there, not God. You know, it's a C.S. Lewis quote I've mentioned a couple times in the videos that C.S. Lewis says, if we don't say to God, thy will be done, God says to us, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And that's where you wind up. Uh, And so there's a real sense in the Inferno of all these people unwilling to let go of their sin. And part of what Dante is saying is don't do that (laughs) because look what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So what were you, you know, like you said, you, you kind of have this image of medieval poetry not sure exactly what that means but you know you're right if you if you've never read any you hear poetry you hear medieval you think boring um but you've also hung around with bendy bono for a number of years now uh which probably helped dispel some of that going in so i'm curious when you picked up the book a month ago or whenever it was what were you expecting okay i'll be honest i didn't have extremely high hopes i knew i was going to get through it i knew that uh this was not I mean, yes, a goal, but also something I just wanted to do with the community. I thought it was a good practice for Lent and for the Easter season. Um, I mean, I wanted to have a a piece of classic literature on my checklist. Under your belt. Under my belt, right? Yeah. Uh, So I didn't have high hopes, but almost right away, as soon as I got into it, I I felt like 
Yeah, I mean, it, it surpassed my expectations, which were already low. But it was, <laughs> it was, it, yeah, I actually really started enjoying it. But probably the thing that struck me the most was, uh, it, it felt like Dante had, well, he was writing with almost modern sensibility. Yeah. Uh, I just, it, I, it's hard to believe that this was written by somebody so long ago. It could have easily been, I mean, from our, from the last century. So I think I know what you mean, but, but tell me more like what part of it is hard to, what part do you okay. look at and say, wow, I can't believe that 700 I mean, years ago? No, no. I mean, well, like just some of the uh, phrasing that he uses and uh, the ideas he's trying to get across, it it feels modern for today. It feels right. like it could be for today. Yeah. Um, maybe timeless would be a good word for it. Um, even though at the same time, like you were saying before, he's talking about the political issues of his day. It's not that those necessarily transfer over here, right. but just um, in how he feels about God and sin and uh, the punishment that people are suffering and his anguish over it and his even regret of parts of his own life. Right. Um, So, yeah, I just kept on coming back to this feeling of this feels modern. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think timeless is definitely the word for it, uh, that it does have that sense of, this transcends any one environment and even you know the political stuff that's certainly in there you can know none of that and mm-hmm. still get a ton out of the inferno yeah uh he because you, you just think oh well here's another random sinner who's going to tell his story about all the horrible things he did and let me add something else to it uh and again this is thanks to you but you recommended this book i'm holding here uh this specific translation was by let me where's his name john Ciardi. yeah and at the be- so this is going to be different than some people's books out there but he gives a quick description, maybe a paragraph or two, about what's about to happen. So you had told me on a past episode, don't worry, it is spoilers, but this isn't that kind of book. It's okay if you get right. spoiled, which you're you know, 100% true. So every canto, you open it up, or you know, you could almost think every chapter, you, you turn the page, it has a quick description of what's about to happen yeah. in just kind of regular terms, really straightforward. Uh, and then you go into the poem and then you can start to see how it's happening. But this was extremely helpful to me because I do yeah. feel like there were times, not all the time, sometimes it would have been fine, but there were definitely times where I don't think I would have had any idea what was happening right. if it hadn't been for that description. And it, it overall, again, it's a case where spoilers save the day because right. it helped me appreciate it more because I wasn't trying to wrap my mind around what is he saying. I knew what he was trying to get at. So this specific trans- translation uh, and just the way the book is formatted was was extremely helpful to me. Yeah, I, I think that's a real difference, too, with older works. Um, our focus on spoilers for good or bad is really a modern occurrence. Mm-hmm. you know. And I think especially the more work has to do with mythology. Uh, I've said this before, that you know when Homer sits down, or whoever Homer was, and, and writes down the Iliad, well, everybody knows how that story goes. Mm-hmm. They've probably heard the story of the Trojan War in some other format before they heard you know homer's take on it and so the issue and just the same thing with with dante we can look at this as christian mythology uh you know we all know heaven purgatory uh paradise especially you know purgatory might be less known to uh some some people today but the concept of Mm -hmm. those that threefold division is is pretty commonly known Mm -hmm. throughout uh christian theology whatever your own particular beliefs about that all happen to be and so we all know how this story ends. Right. It's like part three is paradise. I wonder where he's going to go. Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you know he's going to go down in the inferno. So it's not a, it's not about any of the surprises. Uh, and I don't think it loses its power. Like if you you know you can read John Ciardi's description. Well, now he's going to meet Satan. Satan's got three mm-hmm. heads and blah 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 blah. But then you actually read it, and there's you know it's the power of the language that really hits you. Another thing is in Dante's writing, there's some subtlety to it. So yeah. whereas Ciardi, the translator, in his summaries tells you who you're about to meet, right? Uh, like I think Caiaphas is an example. I don't, it it never actually says his name in the poem, as right. far as I remember. Uh, but it makes it clear who he's talking, about, who Dante is talking about through different terminology and specifics, but not so so specific that you get to the name Caiaphas. So I was glad that CRD had that in there. I mean, I think the only negative I would say, uh, maybe the most challenging thing I'd say about it was even with the summaries, there were some times where I was like, I have no idea, like what right. like what I'm reading. I mean. I understand sort of what's happening because of the summary, but there were times where I wasn't 100% clear on what was going on, but not, I mean, that was just a little bit. Overall, greatly exceeded my expectations. Also, I mean, I, I know you want to jump in here, but uh, one last thing I'd say is... No, no, you keep going. The way the cantos are organized and split up, they're, they're relatively short. And right. so... About 140 lines is the average. So something that encourages me to keep on reading through is feeling like i'm i'm uh making progress i was feeling productive uh you could see tangible results as you're flipping through the pages especially again with this specific book that i have by john Ciardi. he not only had the summary at the beginning he had footnotes much like a study bible uh like where each verse or each line you could go and read something to give you more about that there were some times where i read the notes sometimes where i didn't you right. you kind of gave me the freedom to skip it if I didn't find it that valuable or just didn't feel like I needed more. Yeah, I think the notes on any edition like this, and and this would go, I would consider this any edition of uh, old literature you're reading, Shakespeare, you know, what have you. Uh, take the notes if you're confused. Take the notes if you're interested. If you're not, just go on with the story. Right. And so because of that, uh, because maybe through every canto, I'm skip, you know, almost skipping past two pages of notes. You know, you can feel you're looking at the page numbers and they're growing, growing, and you're yeah. feeling pretty good. And you're like, I can keep going. And so it's a good psychological. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds silly, but yeah, that's definitely true. So overall, a great reading experience. Yeah. And, you know, and I think the other thing you find as you read old books, or at least this is what I find, is I I prefer poetry when I get into classics because I find it easier to read mm-hmm. than prose is. Uh, and part of it is exactly what you're talking about is that number one, there's a lot more blank space on a poetry page. Right. And so you kind of have the psychological advantage, but it's also that there's some natural divisions in poetry. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Dante's writing, you know, divine comedy, the novel, maybe he goes on for 50 pages on one chapter. So you just feel like you're drowning in the middle of that. Uh, so it's helpful to have those small breaks in there, which and- poetry lends itself to. Another interesting encouragement is after reading this, it's the first time I started thinking about things like Beowulf. Yeah. I've like, never read that before. Oh, you, and now you've that, already read longer than Beowulf. Exactly. Now that I've done this, it's like, yeah, I could knock that out too. And so then I, maybe by the end of 2015, I'll have another classic. Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost. You, you totally one. do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole new world. It, it sort of is. I mean, yeah. it's this has now opened me up to. I think the idea that I could enjoy this style of writing, like, like you're saying, 
uh, not just medieval poetry, but sort of this narrative poem is how I thought about it. Yep. It's, uh, I'd never experienced anything like that before. Yeah, yeah. It, I think people hear poetry and, and they imagine, you know, like you're laying on the grassy hill staring at clouds. Right. And it's like, oh my gosh, I just can't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing anything with that. that. That sounds horrible. But no, poetry was like, I mean, this is intense. This is the opposite of that. Right. <laughs> there's right. no clouds. Yeah. There's nothing pink and frilly about this. Uh, so especially, uh, let me speak, especially to any men out there who might have you under the illusion that poetry is somehow unmasculine. You can't get more masculine than something like the Iliad or, you know, the Divine Comedy or something like that. This is deeply masculine poetry. And I don't say that to exclude any women out there at all. It's just, I think men especially can kind of have that feeling that, oh, poetry seems kind of girly. No, mm-hmm. it's not. Not if you go back far enough anyway. Right. Uh, do you want to know a couple of uh, interesting tidbits about the Inferno? Yes, I love interesting tidbits. Oh, yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned before, 100 cantos. Uh, Paradise, or Paradiso, 33. Purgatorio, 33. Inferno, 34. Why does Inferno get the extra canto? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Well, Dante, uh, and you could dive really deep into this, and I hope to at some point. I've, I've only scratched the surface of this topic, but numerology in Dante is a really big thing, uh, especially the reoccurrence of three, which mm-hmm. is a Trinitarian number. His uh, rhyme scheme or his meter that he he writes with in the Divine Comedy is Terza Rima in the original um, Italian. Most English translations don't stick to that, or if they do, they, they only stick to it loosely because you know, trying rhymed poetry doesn't translate very well. Mm-hmm. You even see that in Ciardi in some places, where because he has a rhyme scheme, it sometimes feels a bit forced uh, at times. And I think in his intro, he Ciardi said, that, yeah. I'm not even going to try to rhyme this because yeah. I more want to get across what Dante was trying to say. Exactly, exactly. So uh, he, but he did this rhyme scheme where it's similar to how it looks on the page for Ciardi, where you have a group of three lines, three lines, three lines. To he invented this to mirror the Trinity. So he invented a rhyme scheme or meter, I should say, based on three to mirror the Trinity. Uh. Um, every every uh, division has thirty three cantos, three three, except for the Inferno, mm. which either has thirty four. Or if you count the first two as an introduction, 32. So the Inferno is either guilty of the sin of excess or deficiency, depending on how you count it. Okay. So the Inferno is imperfect yes. in there, which is uh, one of the big themes he's trying to get across. And then so you have, you know, like Satan there, that he's he is this mockery of the trinity but it's so gross and horrific it's almost as though dante's trying to tell us that satan in his rebellion against god wanted to be god well now he's got his own trinitarian form but it's disgusting it's he's trapped he's limited all you know all this great stuff uh that you you could go on for an hour just about the metaphor and symbolism of satan there um did you and I know I mentioned this in the videos, uh, but you can play along if yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Uh, do you know what names are never mentioned in the Inferno? No, I don't know. God is never mentioned. Okay. Jesus is never mentioned. Oh uh, yeah. And the Virgin Mary is never mentioned by name. Uh, he does that very intentionally uh, because that for him would be blasphemous to associate their names with hell in any type of way. And what's interesting is that he refers to all of them. 
but he always refers euphemistically. Okay. You know, so it, it, Mary will be referred to as a lady in heaven, like in Canto 2, where Virgil's telling Dante kind of the backstory about how Beatrice came down to uh, limbo to talk to him and everything. Uh, there's references to the heroine of hell where Jesus comes down, you know, he dies on the cross and comes down to hell and lets the captives free. But it's always like one came here, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And there was one who came before and did this and this. So it's always euphemistic. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because he doesn't want them in any way connected with hell. Exactly. And you'll notice that as soon as we get into the purgatory, in Purgatorio, uh, within the first few cantos, you'll start seeing God, Mary, Jesus, you know, those names wow. be referenced again. I love how intentional he is in his writing. There, it's, he's a genius. Everything in there is intentional. Like, if you see something, anything, I wonder if he meant to do that. It's almost a guarantee that he did. Um, this is something that... Uh, my friend uh, Ben Kirkwald, who you know a little yeah. bit, he's on the uh, Game of Thrones videos. He's been reading the Divine Comedy. He actually didn't didn't start it because I was reading it. He had just started by himself. And he pointed this out, that in the Inferno, there's no sense of really looking forward, or almost no sense of looking forward. The focus is always on right where they are at the moment, whereas when we get into Purgatorio, uh, and especially Paradiso, there's a sense of they're always looking up at the stars. All the time. They're looking Mm -hmm. up at the stars. They're looking up at the stars. And it's always a sense of uh, you're going forward. When they get to the gates of purgatory, Dante has seven P's inscribed on his head because the the Italian word for sin starts with P. And – you know, right – the angel at the gate, you know, carves these P's onto his head but tells him – as you go up, you're going to get these removed. So there's this, always a sense of moving forward, whereas mm-hmm. there's this navel-gazing sense that's p- constantly present in the Inferno, that all that matters is this moment, which reflects the sinful nature, because sin is always focused on the self and on, on the moment. Uh, it reflects the, you know, s- uh, self-punishment thing we talked about earlier, how uh, – people stay there in the inferno you know it's almost a sense of well does god keep them is it really a prison is the inferno really a prison well dante would probably say yes but i think you could read the text in such a way where you could say even if they had the freedom to get up and leave they wouldn't Mm -hmm. because they're so focused on that like they're just stuck there could it also be that in the same way they felt drawn to hell in the first place right they just have a sense that they want to stay there. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, the Inferno and Divine Comedy as a whole kind of feels like you're reading scripture. Yeah, I, yeah, it just it does. It almost feels like you're doing your daily devotions. Uh, and like I mentioned before, it feels spiritual. Like I felt like it was a spiritual experience to read it sometimes. I'm not saying every time I sat down to read this, it was like the Bible. I'm not right. saying that at all. But but you did throw away your Bible. Oh, yeah, Yeah. obviously. (laughs) But, yeah, no, this is different than reading just any other book. Right. Like any old book, I should say. Absolutely. Still, Bible's the best, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) Wanted to throw that out there, but, yeah. So... And, and you probably – I'm sure you, you remember this from uh, when we were doing our master's in theology, but especially during the early part of Christianity, especially the patristics era, uh, one of the most famous hermeneutical or interpretive methods of the Bible was to understand this kind of fourfold meaning. You have the literal meaning, what's actually happening on the page. You have an allegorical meaning. You have a moral meaning. You have a spiritual meaning. Um, you know, I won't go into that super in-depth, um, but you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Right. With That's how the Bible was interpreted for hundreds of years. Dante intentionally mirrors that level within the Divine Comedy. It was his intention that every line would have a literal, allegorical, spiritual, and moral meaning wow. as you go. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. 
I know. Right. Like crazy in a genius way. Right, yeah. And that's why, too, like when you said, I should have mentioned this earlier, you said, oh, there's some parts where even with the notes I felt lost. I, I'd i be shocked if you didn't because yeah. what Dante's trying to do, like he's he's trying to write the whole world. I mean, you think about it, this, he's literally trying to write the whole of creation, especially when you get to Paradiso. Paradiso, it, you know, you start on Earth and you go to the moon and you go to Mars and Jupiter, you know, it's like, oh, really? and then into the outer reaches of the beatific vision. He's trying to write everything wow. in here. And there's no way you're going to catch or actually, you know, not get lost some point along the way. I just want to say, I mean... This is going to be noteworthy to just long-time listeners, but I'm really looking forward to reading on. Yeah. And I mean, I would, I would have been surprised to hear that just a few years ago. Absolutely. From me. Um, it's been the, – the, the, the Divine Comedy has been described as the Summa inverse reference to Summa Theological, but it's also – Can you uh, just stop? Why is it the Summa, Summa inverse? Oh, because Dante uh, was – there's a couple things Dante was obsessed with. Really, triple A, we'll call them. Aristotle, Aquinas, and uh, the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. I should say Virgil, but we got to get the other A yeah. in there to make it work. Okay, you know, so Virgil's, so you made up that phrase. Yeah, I did. That's, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I didn't make up the observation. Okay, just to be clear, no, Dante is absolutely obsessive with Virgil's Aeneid. He's absolutely obsessive with Aristotle, and then he's absolutely obsessive with what at the time was the new kid on the block. You know, Aquinas, the Summa Theologica was published like 50 years before Dante's writing. I can't remember if you said this on a video or on a, pi- a past podcast, but this is an interesting point that these yeah. are contemporaries. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you would compare it to modern day fantasy writers exactly. writing now in light of Tolkien. Exactly. It's that close to one another. Uh, I think you know, Aquinas dies in 1274. And Dante publishes the Divine Comedy somewhere, I want to say 13, 12, 13, 13, somewhere in there. So you're talking less than 50 years. Mm-hmm. That's uh, amazing to huge. think about yeah. that. Because you always think about these not It all characters. seems old. Yeah, everything yeah. seems old, and you don't imagine any of them really knowing each other uh, or yeah, being contemporaries. Uh, yeah, so, so talk more about that. Why was he obsessed with this new guy? Oh, I mean, you know, the same reason the church has been obsessed with Aquinas for the last 700 years. I, I think that... You know, you talk about what what are the most important theological works that Christianity has produced? Well, the Bible is obviously number one. Uh, the Summa Theologica is without question number two. It has influenced every theologian of any significance who has come afterwards. Uh, and part of it is Aquinas' own genius, but it's also um, what Dante was trying to do in a fictional sense is what Aquinas did in a non-fictional or theological sense. Aquinas is not only trying to write his own theology, he's trying to pull in all the wisdom of theology and philosophy up until that point and make a compendium of it within a Christian context. Uh, there's parts in the Summa where, and I'm finding this as I'm going through it, that you know he just kind of glances over something, and it's like, well, you didn't explain that very well. Well, no, because he's like leaving you the the breadcrumb trail to go explore that author further in that sense. So just as Dante's trying to capture the world in his poem, Aquinas was doing the same thing. Let's plug what you're doing again one more time. So you're re- it's called Reading the Summa. Yeah. That's what you can search for on Facebook. I have it loaded up here. I somehow I, – I, you should check this because I check Facebook pretty regularly, and I've not seen these updates popping up in my time. Uh, Facebook does that intentionally with pages. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah, need, so to, you have to I like, need to catch up because you've already had 28 videos, it looks like. 28 videos. Yeah. Uh, well, more than that because some of them I do in two parts. Okay. And so it looks like you're releasing about one every other day. 
Yeah, sometimes I've been a little slower lately. So what I I, I obviously I haven't seen one yet. I'm going to wa- I'll watch them. Someday, I, say, someday. I support you. Uh, but so do you read one passage and then talk about it? Or how yeah. Do, so how they, is, the the summa is divided into questions. Um, so right now we're on question 28 of the first part, and each question then has different articles under it. So, for example, the one I just posted is question 28 on the divine relation. So we're into the treaties on the Trinity at this point. And then there's four articles on that. So when you, uh, if I was to watch these videos, and after you're all complete, however long that takes, yeah, will it be like you read it to me audiobook style? Can I mark on Goodreads that I read the Summa no. by watching your videos? You're no, just reflecting on I'm them. I'm just reflecting on them. Okay. I do have I have a, like an uh, an outline online that I'm continually updating. Okay. That's linked to in all of the videos where it has my own notes on the Summa. So you could read through my notes and I guess kind of count that. But my notes are not <laughs> really anywhere close to the genius of Aquinas. So you think I should just read it? Probably. Yeah, probably. How much is each each video? How much would you say that reflects page count wise? Mm, very little like 10 pages or less okay. i don't know it's t- tough to count page count because my edition of the summa it looks like the bible and that it's got like two columns right. on each page so i don't know i i i, I do at most six articles a question okay or, or, or a video so if there's like some questions have 12 articles and i do that in two videos this is great i read po- or i listen to podcasts at work uh or audiobooks every day at work yeah so I can just put these on at work and listen to them. There you go. This is going to be great. There you go. All right. So yeah. sorry about that. So I got you off track. No. So it's, talking about a little bit about Aquinas. Yeah. Talk, it's considered the summa inverse, and part of it is that you know uh, Aquinas and Aristotle, by way of Aquinas, is his primary um, theological source uh, outside of Scripture for for the Divine Comedy. But it's also been called. Uh, some people have compared the Divine Comedy to a cathedral, and this is fascinating to me, or really to the Mass. So right now in the Inferno, we're out in the world, and we're coming up to the walls of the c- great cathedral, and there's the grotesqueries there, you know, you have your gargoyles and all of that, we're in a place of sin outside of the church. As we walk in, you'll have uh, one of the first things that happens in Purgatorio, and again, don't worry about spoilers, right. is that Dante washes his face of the grime and dirt of hell, and it's symbolic of the baptismal font. Uh, Purgatorio is structured as a pilgrimage, so you know there's lots of singing. It's highly liturgical. It's the Mass, and then Paradiso is the Eucharist, and so it's the height of Christian experience, whereas... Um, Purgatorio is the first part of the Mass. It's the penitential act. It's cleansing yourself of sin. And so the whole thing becomes structured as this cathedral or as a liturgical Mass leading you to the altar where you encounter the real presence of Christ and are subsequently transformed by that. So he's the, the genius of him is just it works on so many different levels. Yeah, genius is a great word to use, and we're not using it lightly. It, you can feel it coming through in the pages. Yeah. You know, and then you could go on another topic you could go on all day about is the paradoxes of the inferno. Uh, the way that the inferno is shaped like a funnel. So technically, as we go down, we're covering less real estate, but yet we move through the early parts very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then as we get closer and closer, uh, it takes longer, even though we're walking on less space. And even though, like, you know, Circle 8 has so much more. It's got 10 divisions in it. Well, how is that possible? That's part of the paradox. He's yeah. constructed a geographical paradox. Uh, we are simultaneously descending into sin, 
and drawing closer to God. Because, you know, remember, Dante's walk, he's going to go through the middle of the earth mm-hmm. and up into purgatory and paradise. And the road to that goes through the inferno. So it's this weird paradox. Mm-hmm. Uh, the symbol of Satan falling from heaven and his legs are sticking out. He's literally upside down. All of the inferno is upside down. Uh, you know, it's stuff like that. And I'm trying to think of some others because there, there's a lot of good ones. Well, this isn't really a paradox, but I, I mentioned in one of the videos that if Dante lived today – with modern science, he would probably have used the metaphor of a black hole for uh, the Inferno, because he draws very close to this. Like, he talks of Satan is the center of all weight. And so you almost have the sense of the whole weight of the universe is crushing down on the devil at the center of the Inferno. Wow. You know, and so there's a a sense, too, the paradox that Lucifer, Satan, in the Inferno is the center of the world in Dante's cosmography he gets what he wants which again is the theme of the inferno we all get what we want or a theme he gets what he wants he's the center of the universe and it's horrible whereas god is at the he's expansive god can't in dante's world as we get into the beatific vision you know and that's why the paradiso goes through planet after planet you're literally going out into the farthest reaches of the cosmos as dante would have conceived them and that's where you find god who encompasses all and is endlessly infinite and expansive and is everywhere you know and so it's that that paradox too that you know we think we want to be the center of the universe but that's the center of all evil and death and you know it's just it's crazy it's absolutely crazy so yeah you, you could go on all day about the paradoxes of the inferno man yeah that's crazy <laughs> oh man it, it's a it's just a fun read you now you had sent in your notes to me uh some things to shake up this conversation a little bit yeah, yeah. uh do you want to run why don't you pick the ones you want to do i'm prepared for any of them so go oh ahead. what did i put for you well, do you want to? Do you want me to just read it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you had said for a couple of fun things. I thought oh, we yeah, could. It's good to sh- have fun things. I thought we could each share the circle or a circle subsection we would both choose to be confined to, and the one that we would least like to be in. Yeah. So should we do uh, that? But you did ask me to exclude limbo since it's not actually. That's that bad. the obvious choice. If yeah. you don't choose limbo in that, there's something deeply wrong with you psychologically. Now the one I, I'm going to start with uh, the least good one. Now this is actually one you didn't think was that bad, but it just sounds disgusting for the flatterers uh, immersed in that river of human excrement. I think it sounds bad. <laughs> I just want to be clear that doesn't sound like a good time to me. Uh, but comparatively, I, I, you're right. You're right. But I, I also it is sort of interesting that you know we're talking about flatterers here, and in the that that section of the poem, it's obvious that this river of human excrement is really representative of their words. Their exactly their uh, I- I- immense amount of words. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you know the false flattery. So know? that would be my one of the ones I'd least want to be in. How what was one that you'd least want? Oh to be in? man. Well. Certainly, you know, the the grafters, the ones who are boiled in oil for all eternity, yeah. if they stick their heads up, they're tortured by demons. That one's down there. Um, the ones where they're ripped apart by swords as they're walking around. And, of course, I don't think anybody wants to swap places with Judas Iscariot no. in Satan's mouth. Yeah. Uh, now, for, you know, there's no good choice in hell. <laughs> so I was trying to think outside the box here. And I thought, all right, there is that one scene where, uh, help me remember what their exact sin was, but it's the two guys who are in the frozen lake, so it's one of the f- worst ones, and their heads are sticking out from the neck up, Yeah, and they're right next to each other, so one, oh, I know, 
one was killed by the other. Yes. And so... Starved to death. Yeah, so as repayment, the one that was starved to death by the other one is forever, for eternity, eating the back of the head <laughs> of this other guy. And so, Gnawing it like a bone is the language used. So trying to think outside the box, I thought, well, maybe if you and I... Oh, yeah. Our two heads were frozen next to each other, we could keep the podcast going. <laughs> and maybe that would be okay. I mean, I'm yeah. not for hell, just to be clear. Right. I'm against hell. But if we have to go there... At least give us a microphone in the ice. Yeah. Yeah. So how about you? Which one? Well, which one of us gets to gnaw the other, though? That's the real question. Well, I also was saying it'd be preferable if we're not biting each other's scalps. Okay. Like, we could just be talking, maybe. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, You know, I was actually... uh, The lustful doesn't sound too bad, because you're just blown around. So this one is the one where they're... Are they in... They're, like, in a storm. Yeah. They're They're just flying all over the place. Or what? No, they're just, like... Imagine that you're in a tornado. Yeah, let me read it. It says... Yeah, those who commit sins of flesh are swept uncontrollably, uncontrollably by stormy winds. Those unable to control their physical urges in life are now forever controlled by a storm. You're right. That's not that bad. That's not that bad. Uh, I actually think the suicides isn't that bad. You're the a tree? tree. You're just a tree. Yeah, but the harpies are eating you forever. Yeah, but you're just a tree. It's still, there's pain. How bad can it be to be a tree? It's got to be painful. First of all, you can't move. Yeah. And then you're being eaten, just like watching somebody eat you. Yeah. And then you come back to life, and it's all over again. I mean, you get regenerated, and it starts all over again. But my ultimate choice, I think, uh, would have to be, <clears throat> I'm going to be down there at the magicians and astrologers where my head is on backwards, because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, no one's torturing you. Uh, you're not being boiled alive. Nobody's eating you. You're in relative climate comfort. You're not on fire. You're not frozen. Your head's just backwards. Okay. Okay. You get good exercise. I suppose. Uh, No, you didn't ask me about this, but I did make a list of, I I didn't know what to call this, maybe like top imagery. And what I mean by this is it's not a favorite. It's not a least favorite. It's more just the images really stick with you. Yeah. So I'm going to run through some and you can respond. This is in no order. Okay. Uh, uh, like you, well, the what made me think of it though is you mentioned the heads twisted backwards. That's obviously uh, a hard one to get out of your yeah. out of your mind. You can really picture that, and and this is for the fortune tellers who, in their lives, were looking forward or supposedly. Oops. So now they're stuck looking backwards in hell. So uh, you just mentioned that one, the, the tree one. I thought that was again. I mean, that imagery really sticks with you as the harpies are eating these people that committed suicide. Uh, let me go to some other ones though, that we haven't talked about. Uh, on the cover of the book, we've got a picture of people upside down in the hot ground with yeah. fire also burning their feet. And not just because it's on the cover of the book and I can literally see an image, but <laughs> but also just because of how it's written. Yeah. Uh, that was sort of sort of a more messed up one. Yeah. And I mean, again, these are ones where you can just really get a strong visual and it stays with you afterwards. Um a couple more here. And if, do you want to chime in with any of that? No, you, you roll for it. Uh, I'll, I'll go through mine and you can add to or whatever. Uh, the head as a lantern. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about earlier. That was messed up. Yeah, there's some great artwork of that out there, too. Uh, the Now, this is... I, I really think this is one of the most interesting ones. So, you're tormented by these serpents. They bite you and their bite causes you to disintegrate. Yes. But then you regenerate. But the And I said this earlier, but the most interesting part about this is... It's not just bad that you regenerate and it happens all over again. The regeneration process itself is painful to these sinners. Yeah. So that was crazy. But then... Then you have like the five who are kind of morphing into each other. Oh, yeah. That happened in the same chapter. That chapter was weird because it felt like there were 
different punishments, but all sort of yeah. themed together, like a transformation into lizards almost. Right. Uh, but then the one that... Uh, it's not necessarily the most horrifying because what happens with Satan is horrifying. Yeah. But Caiaphas being crucified to the ground and having every person walk over him for all of eternity is just completely it's a raw messed deal. up. Well, he was bad news. Yeah. He did, it did lead to Jesus' death. That's true. But I mean, Jesus planned on dying. That's true. So Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to do it, but still. That, so the, the, how about you? Were there any strong images beyond what I just said? Oh, no, you hit most of the good ones. I I mean, I I love, uh, I don't know, for, for some reason, the image of the, just the hordes of sinners lined up in the vestibule of hell, mm-hmm. or that line, I never knew death had undone so many, which T.S. Eliot uses in The Wasteland, which is one of my favorite poems, uh, is just an incredible image that just the shocking despair of that. Um I love the image of finding Dante finding himself awake in a, a woods, you know, in the midpoint of our life. I found myself lost in the midpoint of the world. Uh, you know, it's translated in different ways. And then trying to get up the mountain by himself and the three, you know, the she-wolf, the leopard, and the... Oh, yeah, that's the, early the lion or whatever, or the panther. It's, I forget what the other one is, you know, but they attack. So that, I just love the imagery of that. Um you know, it's interesting talking about the imagery because it, it's such a shame that this will never be adapted into a movie uh, because there's really no plot. Or if they do, they'll do something stupid like how they're threatening to adapt the video game into a movie. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. Uh, because it's such a visual book, you know, and you could see, give somebody $200 million, a really visionary director, and just let let them loose on this and uh to do it right it would probably have to be rated nc-17 you know by the time yeah. all is said and done which is it would be kind of funny if they did the whole trilogy as a movie because this would be nc-17 and purgatory is probably pg-13 and then you know uh paradise of uh, paradiso is g than g you know so it would be a weird weird trilogy could they do instead of a trilogy could they smash all of these into one long movie probably not not do it justice uh, we didn't prepare for this, and you can probably see me flipping through the pages here trying to find where I underlined, but did you have any specific favorite quotes from the book that you have prepared? Or uh, I can find one here. I Let me let me pull up the text here, because I, I want to actually read it. I read it on the most recent video, but it's, it's good enough to read again. Uh, while you're looking that up, I'll read one here. So in Canto 5, pretty early on here in the story, uh, now this is... I think it, I think the character's name is Francisca. It's a female. Uh, kind of surprisingly, lack of females in this in this story. I mean, yeah. in the in the narrative. But well, uh, Dante was mostly mad at other men. I guess she says the double grease. Sorry, the double grief of a lost bliss is to recall its happy hour in pain. Uh, I felt that. Did you? Yeah, you yeah. Of the, the <laughs> lustful, yeah. she and her. I think she. This is yeah. This is during the carnal or the lustful, and uh, they were reading Lancelot together. But I th- but it's more things I think, got a little too steamy. But the reason this sticks out to me is not necessarily because of her specific sin or what they're what they're necessarily talking about specifically. But in general, you can see that this probably represents all of hell, where they yeah. can look back on their lives, recall the happy times, uh, but know that that's lost to them forever. Exactly. My favorite line, and probably my favorite line in the entire Divine Comedy, comes in Canto 24. This is in Malabolge 6. Uh, if you'll remember, Jesus at the Harrowing of Hell 
causes an earthquake, knocks out one of the bridges. So when they go down into Malibolge 6, where Caiaphas and the hypocrites are, they have to climb out the other side. And so they're climbing up, huffing and puffing, and Virgil then says this, which is probably the most incredible speech in the entire comedy. He says, up on your feet, this is no time to tire. The man who lies asleep will never wake in fame, and his desire and all his life drift past him like a dream, and the traces of his memory fade from time like smoke in air or ripples on a stream. Now therefore rise, control your breath, and call upon the strength of soul that wins all battles unless it sink and the gross bodies fall. There is a longer ladder yet to climb. This much is not enough. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. And one of the few places where, despite what I was saying earlier, that held, it doesn't look forward, you know, that it's very much focused on the moment. One of the rare illusions that you get to what is to follow of uh, purgatory in that moment of the longer ladder yet to climb, you know, that this massive mountain that lies ahead of them. Uh, but I think that last line, you know, this much is not enough. It's, it's just perfect. Uh, and in a sense, it encompasses what the difference between Dante and those in hell needs to be. That those in hell satisfied for this much being enough. You know, they, they got a certain point in their life and they stopped trying to improve themselves or anything like that. They chased other things. And so uh, just a, a wonderful speech by Virgil. This is not necessarily a moving quote, but I just want to read it. It's uh, uh, Virgil speaking here. Uh, or no, sorry, Dante. Uh, let me read this here. This is Canto 29. So we've got Virgil saying, I am a shade who leads this living man from pit to pit to show him hell as I have been commanded. So we never saw the part where Virgil has been commanded to do this. Can you give me a little bit of, I mean, help me. With well, back- he, we do in Canto too. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I want to go back to. Can you uh, can you kind of remind me how that all went down? That why Virgil? I mean, I know maybe why outside Dante chose Virgil, but in right. story, in story, why was Virgil chosen to to lead Dante? Um, because Dante's such a big fan of his. You know, it's somebody he loves and admires Virgil. It's somewhat of a metaphorical choice, and that Virgil for Dante is the height of human reason. Um, the limit of what you can get to without any type of supernatural grace, which by the way is division Thomas Aquinas makes too in his theology. Yeah. Um, not necessarily with Virgil, but the sense that there are certain things that you can get to with grace or without grace by reason alone and certain things you can't. Um, so in Canto two, then, uh, Mary gets on the phone with St. Lucia who gets on the phone with Beatrice and says, Dante's in trouble. Get down to uh, Limbo and tell Virgil to go help him out. She goes down there, uh, is unaffected by any of the suffering of hell, which uh, amazes Virgil. And he says, well, what do you want me to do? And, and she says, well, head up to the top and go find Dante. And he says, even if I'd done it already, it wouldn't be done fast enough. And off to the races he goes. Uh, in Canto 23, we get the description of Caiaphas. And remember, I mentioned they don't actually say his name here, so... Dante says, and then I saw a figure crucified upon the ground by three great stakes, and I fell still in awe. <clears throat> then somebody tells him, that one nailed across the road counseled the Pharisees that it was fitting one man be tortured for the public good. So you can see, right. like you were saying, Jesus. You can establish it euphemistically. They don't, yeah, they don't use the name Jesus there. Uh, the guy goes on to say, naked he lies fixed there, as you see, in the path of all who pass. There he must feel the weight of all through all eternity. 
His father-in-law and the others of the council, which was a seed of wrath to all the Jews, are similarly staked for the same evil. Yikes. That's a rough go. <laughs> no. So, I mean, there are other things I underlined there when it, like, when it came to some of the demon names. Yeah. Seeing. Uh, but, yeah, pretty, pretty intense stuff there. Yeah. Do you remember the... I mean, I feel like we've got we covered quite a lot here. You did ask me to join in with this grand tradition of Dante commentators, where they imagine either fictional characters or historical characters and try to guess where they would have landed in the inferno. Should we do a couple of those just to yeah, close it out? Let's not do five. Let's just pick some funny ones that we have. Okay. So I'll just open it up. I tried to pick some uh, villains that we haven't mentioned in the show before. So I'll start with Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. Obviously, he's greedy. He, you know, he had the almanac from the future, and he's able to make some money. So, like Sisyphus, is that how you say the name? Sisyphus. Yeah, Sisyphus. Yes, yeah, Sisyphus. Uh, who had? He's the guy that had to push the boulder up the hill over and over, and it falls back down, and it goes and does it again. Yep. This would be uh, this would be Biff's punishment: uh, pointlessly pushing the heavy boulder. And you remember which? Uh, do you remember which part of the? That would be Canto Four. Okay. Yeah, for our Circle Four, anyway, not Canto Four. How about if you say you take one and I'll take one more? Well, I put uh, Yoda in limbo right there in the Citadel of Reason oh. a long time ago. Talk about a virtuous pagan, you know? That's right. Died before Christ. Uh, he'd be right at home there, hanging out with Plato and Aristotle and all those guys. So yeah, Yoda's going to make it to limbo. Um, now this one might be a, a little controversial, and so I, I do have an alternate, but... Uh, there's a character who many have hated for years. We've never mentioned him on the podcast ever. I'm positive. Really? Uh, but for years, this is a hated character who in many ways remains off frame for his entire movie. I'm talking about none other than the hunter, also known as the man from the movie Bambi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, murderer he is of, a hated character. Yeah, murderer of Bambi's mother. Yeah. Uh, he is condemned to the river of boiling blood and fire. How deep is he? Well, he's probably more on the shallow end, to be honest. Right, he did but, only shoot a deer. But we know from Dante that those who spilled the blood of others now suffer eternity bathed in blood. Now, I know this is controversial. We probably have some hunters out there in our audience. I have family members who are hunters, so I'm not... Right. I don't, I'm not taking this seriously. But it's an anthropomorphic... Yeah, these are all jokes. These There's are all an jokes. anthropomorphic deer, so... <laughs> right, right, right. So it's a, it's a little yeah. bit different because Bambi could speak. So uh, I'm not, this is not any sort of uh, agenda against hunting, just for the record. I right. just thought it would be funny to throw him in there. But uh, what do you think? The hunter? I think that's where he belongs. <laughs> and, if, and if you disagree with me about, uh, about that, then just put in uh, Hannibal Lecter. Okay. Yeah, that works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm putting Harry Potter... In Circle what? Eight, Malavolge Four for practicing magic. Okay, he gets to walk around with his head on backwards. All right, uh, I, I, I thought about putting Joker on there because, well, first of all, in the 1989 Batman movie, there's a often repeated line: "Ever dance with the devil in the pale of the moonlight." Yeah, so he goes that. He where does he go? Well, same place as Harry Potter. Mm, let's see. Let's just make him a thief because he steals happiness, but he also he steals possessions. Okay, uh, it's kind of crazy. So he's the one that's tormented by serpents, where he you know he get spontaneously combusts and just regenerates again. So let's let's make that the Joker. All right, uh, 
you mentioned that there is a character named Michael Scott in the Inferno. Yeah, a lot of there's a lot of really specific names in the Inferno. Right. Are these friends of Dante or people Some, he knows? <laughs> several of them are. So who is Michael Scott? And- I don't know who he was in real. Some translations render Michael the Scott. So somebody who's connected to Scotland in some way. Um, but obviously not the Michael Scott of the office. But I found myself wondering, where would the Michael Scott of the office yeah. go? Well, I think he's in the River of Excrement. Oh, for flatter. flatter. Absolutely. <laughs> ben. Excellent episode. Well, I got one more I got to do. Thanks for your hard work I got work one on more this. character. It's going to hit the music now. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Jar Jar Binks is going to take Judas Iscariot's place to be oh. true to life by Satan because he betrayed his benefactors. And who are his benefactors? The Star Wars fans who bought money or bought merchandise, bought movies, you know, spent all this time on there. Jar Jar Binks betrayed us and deserves Judas Iscariot's place in Satan's mouth. For his gungan feet will get shredded by Satan's claws for all eternity. Oh man, oh man, that was a fun episode. Uh, thank you for taking us through the Divine Comedy Band. That's a good time. Now get ready for a major tonal shift when we get to Purgatorio. Very different. And just so you know, on the podcast, we'll continue to cover the books uh, after we finish them. And in the meantime, go to our YouTube page where Ben is giving weekly video devotions on this uh, on these right. readings. So. That's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I am Ben Bono. And we are the Sci-Fi Christians, signing off. Yeah, goodbye. Episode 351, Prancing Through Purgatorio. Yeah. That's a weird title. <laughs> Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I'm Ben DiBono, and I think this is the first time in the last 700 years that anyone has associated Dante with prancing. So we've Once done again, it. We're breaking new ground in Dante's scholarship. Once again, the Sci-Fi Christian at the cutting edge of literature exploration. That's right. Well, Ben, we have encircled the Inferno. Yeah. Tonight we prance through Purgatory. You kind of have to encircle Purgatory, too. (laughs) Yeah. And soon we will be... Actually. We uh, should have been prancing in Paradiso. Yeah, there is a fair amount of prancing in Paradiso. Rats. Uh, Well, we'll think of something else for that. The planets of Paradiso. Yeah, there are some planets. Yeah. Even the sun. You know, I haven't read any of Paradiso yet, even though I'm a little bit behind your reading schedule, but I'm just proud of myself that I finished not one, but two medieval poems. I'm I'm proud of you, too. Man, this has been a great year. I think I'm already at, I think when I finished uh, Purgatorio last night, that was my 14th, I'll check, but that was my 14th book I finished this year so far. Well done. Which, you know, my total last year was only uh, 29. So I'm almost halfway to my, I mean, yeah. I'm already halfway past. You're going to break 40 here. this year. Yep, 14. Uh, and as a reminder, two years ago, I only read four books in a year. Yeah. So things are looking like up. three years worth of books and <sighs> one fell swoop. So, Ben. Well, one, speaking of our titles for these episodes, though, yeah. I just think of Encircling the Inferno. Dante and Virgil never actually do Encircle the Inferno. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we just yeah. need, we just like alliteration uh, yeah, or like true. sounding... In, I don't, yeah. We'll figure it out. It had a nice ring to it. Ben, um, I'm guessing this isn't somebody's first episode of the Sci-Fi Christian, and I'm guessing they are familiar with what you've been doing with uh, the Divine Comedy, but just go ahead and give us an overview as if somebody's listening to this for the first time. Well, I'm Ben DiBono. Hello, I'm Matt Anderson. Uh, so welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian. We've been doing this for about four years now. Yeah. And well, our, should we... 
maybe skip over some of that middle ground. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so this year for the Lent and Easter seasons, I was doing a read-through of the Divine Comedy on uh, YouTube, on our YouTube channel, and Matt joined in, and we have now finished uh, Purgatorio. And so we, we did an episode on the Inferno when we finished that. Um, we did an episode, and now we're doing an episode on Purgatorio, and when we finish Paradiso in a month or so, we will do an episode on that as well. If you have no idea what those three are, uh, you're probably too lost to listen to this episode. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah it's the a divine, guy named Dante. Yeah, Dante, he wrote The Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy is made up of three separate but united poems, narrative, narrative poems. Yeah. Uh, Inferno is the popular one because people have heard the phrase Dante's Inferno. Right. But he's he also, after going through hell, which is the Inferno, he then travels to Purgatory, the Purgatorio, and then ends with going to heaven, which is called the Paradiso. Exactly. And uh, I am not a big reader. I've never... Well, in the past, I wasn't. You I am, are now. I am now. Uh, I like reading. I just didn't read in mass the way I do these days. I had never read Dante before, but this is Ben's... I mean, how many times you've read this multiple times? Yeah, this yeah. Is, what would you guess? Oh, I don't know. Um, counting the readings I'm doing right yeah, now, yeah, because you're doing three at a time, right? No, I'm doing more than that at okay. a time because it's different translations. Yeah, the, the original language was Italian, Italian, which I'm actually working on learning to read because I would like to read Dante in the original. Oh, that's awesome! Because your ancestry is Italian. That's true. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, more than five. I mean, so I read. Uh, well, because one of the translations of Inferno I read this year, she only did Inferno, so she doesn't have a translation to Purgatory mm-hmm. or Paradiso. Uh, so I was reading five through Inferno, and I'm reading four, one of which is kind of a translation, kind of a paraphrase. It's sort of like the message, for those of you who are familiar with that Bible translation. Mm-hmm. It's like what the message is to the Bible, uh, that, that is to uh, Dante, which is to say interesting and a different perspective, but not quite the same as reading the actual text. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, I'd been trying to get my wife to read Dante, and she started it, was having a hard time, because she didn't understand it. So I was like, okay, I will read you the Inferno uh, and explain it to you along the way. So romantic times are afoot in the DeBono household as we make That's, our way through the nine circles of hell. That is awesome. Yeah, so we're we're right down in circle eight right now. Okay, great. Yeah, everybody's getting ripped alive and all sorts of good stuff. Amazing. So now, if you did hear our episode called Encircling the Inferno, where we talked about the Inferno, uh, you'll remember that I really liked it. I was impressed by how much it spoke to me. I have to admit here early on, that this one didn't hit me in the same way, but don't be worried, listeners. There's a reason. I actually asked Ben about this uh, fairly early in my reading because I felt like instantly I went from having a good grasp as to what was going on yeah. from in Inferno and then going into Purgatorio and just feeling often lost. And Ben gave me a multi-tier explanation on why that is the case, and we'll talk about that tonight. Yeah, and, and uh, that will continue as we go into Paradiso. Paradiso, I think, is is probably the most difficult section, um, in part because, and I don't want to get into Paradiso too much, we'll save some for next time, mm-hmm. uh, but in part because what's going on in Paradiso is the text itself is trying to direct your attention 
away from the text and towards God. So the entire way that he's writing it is meant to draw you out of the poem and towards a meditation on God. And so the poem itself forces itself into taking a back seat in the experience. But from a literary reading perspective, that can make it very enigmatic and and difficult. And you see the beginnings of that going on in Purgatorio, um, where and this is very intentional too of um where in inferno we're very focused on the self and so it's very much about every individual in their small story and purgatorio we begin to move past that that's why the stories are less detailed and the different characters that we meet have uh less strong personalities mm-hmm. and all of that so we'll we'll get into all of right. that yeah so uh, your experience is not an unusual one um and I think that it's part of why, you know, something I've been saying for, for years regarding pop culture, but I think uh, it comes in even more into the fore we're talking about classical literature, is that there's a difference between how much you enjoy it, like the little, you know, spine-tingling thrill you get out of it versus how much you can appreciate it. Oh, we talked about this last week. Uh, do you remember here at, in the studio? No. I had mentioned to you that when it comes to this book, I'm at a point where... I may not be enjoying it as much as Inferno, right? But I still appreciate. I appreciate it as much, yeah, uh, if not more, because of what he's doing when it comes to the way he uses his genius to craft this narrative. Exactly. So I couldn't, and I think you might be mad about this. I, I couldn't. I was a little disappointed. I couldn't, with a clear conscience, give it a five star. But I felt totally comfortable going four to four point five. Just. Because of how much I liked Inferno, and I knew yeah. it wasn't equal to that, I couldn't give it that high of a score. See, I give any classics five stars automatically. But why is that? Um, well, I just like I used to try and rate them kind of on how much I enjoyed them or whatever. But then I started to think about it. It's like there's something kind of repulsive to me about you know rating Shakespeare on a one to five. It's like oh, he knocked it out of the park with Macbeth, but I don't know about that Romeo and Juliet. You know, well, when I use Goodreads, which is the website we're talking about where we leave reviews and leave ratings, in a sense, it's like my reading journal for myself. Right. So even some of the notes, not necessarily in in Dante, but in some other areas, the notes I leave are. Not so much review sometimes, but almost just, I want to remember this for myself later. Or here's my favorite quote from this book. Yeah. And, uh, so I get what you're saying, but I, the way I use Goodreads, I have to give it how I actually feel about it. But I do understand. Yeah, yeah. And, and how people apply five-star ratings is... Uh, you know, very different from person to person. For me, the other part of the reason I do it is that there's people out there, oh, Dante, one star. Oh. I didn't understand. I like so I gotta counterbalance them. Cause for a while I was I was trying to just like not give any star ratings to classics because I just felt like, you know, I I should submit to them as a reader, not, you know, be there kind of trying to judge them. But then it's like, man, there's people out there giving Homer one star and Shakespeare. Well, I I gotta balance it out. I do like what you're saying because yeah. You have to uh, give credit where credit is due to some of these people and authors and and stories, and they wouldn't be classics if they weren't great pieces of literature. Exactly. So, but but what I'm saying, as far as it being a little bit subjective, is that what you're rating is different than what I'm rating. Absolutely. You know, what you're rating is personal enjoyment and yes. personal experience, and when I'm rating a classic, uh, 
that's not going into my consideration. For example, I'm reading James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, and I've been reading it for several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to go back and read it again because I don't understand it at all right now. So in terms of personal enjoyment, it's like a zero. Okay. You know, it's not a fun book to read. In fact, I just ordered the annotated notes somebody did and it's a 700 pages of just notes so you can figure out no. what he said at every section so i got that open and then i have the text open so it's a phenomenal novel as a literary experience um so i'm gonna give it five stars when i finish it yeah uh because i respect it i admire so much what he's doing but in terms of personal enjoyment it's not there that's the thing i there was a part of me that felt bad not giving it five and now I'm talking about uh, Purgatorio because I do respect it. Yeah. Maybe I should just bump it up to a five with you, the listeners, understanding my enjoyment level was more of a four, but you can't not respect this. Yeah. It's, and I, I think Paradiso is going to be the same thing uh, for hmm. you because Paradiso, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's incredible what he's doing. You know what? You convinced me. And I'm not just trying to, usually you convince me to lower my score, <laughs> but in this case, you're right. I respect it too much. Let's get it, let's get the word out there, yeah. folks. Yeah. I mean, you can always put in your review too. Like sometimes I do that if I have like a half star, you know. So you know this, but I'll tell the listeners from for this review, I didn't know what to say other than I didn't understand it as well. So I just copy and pasted a Facebook conversation you and I had. So almost the entirety of my review is you trying to bring me back from the ledge <laughs> and telling me why it's okay. So. Uh, go check that out on Goodreads. So, I mean, I want to get to that because I, I think that we had a, well, I don't want to pat myself on the back or anything, uh, but I, I I was hoping that we would we would kind of go through that because I had developed some good thoughts in there. Well, I thought they were good thoughts <laughs> for what I wanted to talk about here. Um, I thought maybe what would be helpful, especially since some people aren't as familiar with Dante, is to kind of do what we did last time with the Inferno, just kind of walk through mm-hmm. the different parts. Uh, and then I have a bunch of other notes on uh, the structure, the punishments, the way that Purgatorio is different than the other two parts. I want to revisit the idea of Purgatorio uh, or of the Divine Comedy as being a parallel for the Mass, because uh, I think that's very important as we move into Paradiso. Uh, so we have a lot of fun stuff to cover, and of course, hear more of your thoughts along the way. That sounds awesome. So I think what would be helpful for this uh, as I'm thinking about it, is as we do the summary, maybe talk about the structure of the Purgatorio alongside of of oh, yeah. uh, the summary of everything, because uh, the two really go hand in hand. And Purgatorio's structure is much more complex than the Inferno's is, or even um, than Paradiso's is. Uh, you know, at the Inferno, we're essentially barreling towards oblivion. You know, it's it's pretty much a straight shot down and everything. Whereas in Purgatorio, you know, so Inferno, you, you know, you have an opening couple cantos and they're in hell and you're just walking through the circles for the rest of it. In Purgatorio, we really have to divide it into three separate sections uh, and actually a little bit more than that, more on that in a second. But Dante envisions Purgatory as a large mountain that people are climbing up and there are seven terraces in this mountain and each one corresponds to one of the seven deadly sins and so that part of it is similar to inferno whereas inferno we had you know nine circles one for each sin here we have seven terraces that uh like i said for the seven deadly sins and kind of correspond a little bit to the inferno circles though not perfectly 
Um, but we also have that whole section, which does is similar to Inferno, is is sandwiched between a longer section at the beginning where we're in anti-purgatory, not anti as in against purgatory, but A-N-T-E as in an antechamber, and then uh, a longer section at the end when we are at the top of the mountain and we reach everybody's favorite vacation destination, the Garden of Eden, everyone! Whoa. Yeah! Uh, and so what you actually have, whereas in Inferno, uh, outside of the first two, maybe three cantos, and then the rest of it is sins, you actually only have 18 cantos uh, in, in in Purgatorio devoted to the actual punishments uh, themselves. So just a little bit over half of um, uh, half of the poem uh is is devoted to the punishments whereas inferno it's basically all punishments all day all the time mm-hmm. uh and that i think can contribute to a little bit of what you're feeling matt when you get into the beginning you're like okay here come more punishments and then it's a little <laughs> while before we get anywhere i mean it wasn't necessarily pro eternal punishment but it's right. definitely easier to visualize some of those graphic things he described in inferno yeah yeah Ah, uh, man i'm gonna forget the technical term can we have like one 10 second pause yeah, Sorry. Yeah. All right. So the term that I was looking for that I I couldn't remember and I wanted to talk about it is the term chiastic, uh, a chiastic structure, which I will define for us in just a second, uh, is part of what makes Purgatorio much more complex structurally. Uh, so Matt, are you familiar with what a chiastic structure is? I'm not. Okay. So a chiastic structure is essentially a pattern that's used in poetry or literature or something like that where if you think of a think of how to explain this correctly um think of like a a theme you know an initial theme that you reach Mm -hmm. and that we assign that that's theme a and then the next theme we get to is theme b and then the next theme we get to is theme c and then we start to work our way out and then the fourth theme we get to corresponds to theme b and so on and so forth till we're back. I'm going to give you an example of this, uh, since that's probably a confusing explanation. This is all throughout the Bible, too. So if you, you know, Google chiastic, C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C structure in the Bible, you get tons of examples. But in Milton's Paradise Lost, um, we have we begin in, in books one through three with Satan's sinful actions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that would be our first major theme. That's theme A. Uh, book four would be the entry into paradise by uh, Satan. Uh, and then that would be theme C, or theme B. Theme C then starts in books five through six in a flashback of the war in heaven. Theme C continues in uh, books seven to eight with the creation of the world. So those two correspond together with being flashbacks, being, you know, they're thematically twinned. And then we start to back out. So remember, theme B was the entry into paradise. So then in book nine, we have the loss of paradise. And then theme A was Satan's sinful actions. And theme A on the back end for books 10 through 12 is humanity's sinful actions. Okay. Okay. So you kind of see how you start here structurally and then you, you know, you, move inwards thematically and then outwards so you're retracing the same ground. If we were to apply this to a sci-fi Christian recording section, we might say, uh, I get to Matt's apartment, that's theme A. Uh, We turn on our microphones, that's theme B. We record the podcast, that's theme C. 
we turn off our microphone. So that's back to theme B because it corresponds to, okay. you know, setting up equipment and everything. And then I leave Matt's apartment. That's theme A again. See how we uh-huh. have that going on. Okay, so the same thing is going on in Purgatorio. You know what? I just realized before you dive into that, I think Lost was sort of structured like that with their six seasons. One and six correspond, correspond, two and five, and three and four. There you go. Whoa. Whoa. I just, we were able to appreciate Lost more. Yeah. All right. So, so, so you do, you bet you're feeling really good about giving Purgatorio five stars now because it glad. helped you, it helped yeah. you appreciate Lost. So, anti Purgatory, you know, the, the first nine cantos uh, would be part A. And then we move into the first set of sins with the next nine cantos. And then we have the second set of sins and that nine cantos. And then we have, um, Eden outside on the other end of purgatory. So we have an ABBA structure. However, it gets more interesting than that because lest you think, oh, we're just, you know, pulling this out of nowhere. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this from some notes in Peter Lightheart's book on the divine comedy, Ascent to Love, which I, I do recommend. Uh, every, every time we transition from one of these themes, Dante has a dream or a vision. Mm-hmm. You remember he has several dreams and visions in this. So the first one is going to be um, he has a dream of St. Lucy. And this is when he is carried up the mountain to the gates of paradise. Okay? And so that's the transition from anti-purgatory into purgatorio proper. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through purgatorio, he has the dream of the siren calling him uh and it's a dream of temptation at this point it's the most horrible of his dreams that he has in purgatorio why because we're right in the middle of sin and then we get the back half of the sins in the next nine and there then we have another transition point as he leaves purgatory and reaches eden with the dream of rachel and leah from the bible so we have these corresponding transition points that move us in and out of the chiastic structure and then the other thing that's going on here, remember how we talked about how Dante is obsessed with the number three, right? The whole thing oh, yeah. is, is structure in the number three. Well, anti-purgatory anti, uh, is nine cantos. Then you have a group of nine, the next section, you know, and then you have a group of nine for the backside of the sins. Okay. And then you have a group of six to finish it off. So all multiples of three. Okay. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is most definitely what Dante was doing. Uh, and... What's interesting is that even, you know, so he has this kind of beautiful symmetry throughout. It doesn't quite break down where we we meet the middle part of the chiastic structure in Canto 19, whereas the middle part of the cantos numerically would be Canto 17. And so it doesn't quite break down where we perfectly hit it in the, the middle point. But Dante's even aware of that because then he uses uh, Canto 17 to be where Virgil explains to Dante the moral structure of hell. Just as he explained, or the moral structure of purgatory, just as he explained the moral structure of hell mm-hmm. uh, in Inferno. So, uh, lots of fun structural stuff going on um, throughout purgatory. So, uh, is that clear? So, what? Yes, I, okay. I, I followed you, and it's interesting because what you're saying, there's things layered in here. That we're not certain Dante did on purpose, but it's almost positive that he did. Yeah, I mean, that that's the case with just about all um, classical literature, unless you have somebody who says, I did this intentionally, which <laughs> kind of takes away from the fun, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all, all sorts of great debates. But in this case, I would say, you know, the evidence is uh, overwhelming that mm-hmm. he's doing. I mean, Dante's a structure fiend. He's um, very, you know, in terms of... Uh, 
classical art, where we think of like modern art uh, and expressionism and all that stuff as this three free flowing artistic vision. Well, Dante would be of an older school that would say, uh, you know, we we constrain this the artistic vision within a form, and that's what gives it beauty and continuity with the past. And so, form is very important to him. Numerology is really important to him. So all this stuff that we know was important to Dante corresponds to this structure deal. Okay. All right. So then as we get into kind of what's going on in purgatory itself. So an anti-purgatory, well, after they, they you know, the, we, the story picks up with them right outside of hell. Uh, and Cato of the Roman Empire is there and he's kind of greeting them and everything and telling them to, you know, get moving and all that. And in fact, there's one point where he kind of comes and chases people up the mountain a mm-hmm. little bit. He's, he's a little crappy. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Dante, Dante first has to go and wash his face from the filth of hell. Right. And this is where the first P comes off. Is that right? No, not, no, no. He yet. doesn't even get the P's till he gets to the gate of purgatory. Uh, yeah. Okay. That was one of the... All this, since we're talking about it anyways, I know you'll talk about it more, but for me, as a first-time reader, that was one of the interesting things. So we had mentioned this before, but uh, P is for sin, because in Italian, the word for sin starts with the letter P. Yes. So he has seven letter P's on his forehead. Yes. At all... Uh, all stemming from the seven deadly sins. Exactly. So, so every time he ascends a ledge in purgatory, one, one goes away. Exactly. And so finally at the, I mean, yeah, what I really liked, and I, I just read this last night, but when he's completely cleansed, he almost can't even remember his sins anymore. Oh, he can't. Yeah. Yeah, he can't. So, uh, and that's something we'll else. Ta- we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, we could talk about it a bit now because this is another chiastic moment where we begin with a river and end with a river. Okay. Right, so he has this cleansing in the river, uh, Lethe, which is flowing all the way down the mountains of Purgatory, and that is what is freezing Satan in place inside of the mm-hmm. Inferno. Um so he begins with washing the grime of the inferno off of himself. But then when he gets to the top of the mountain in Eden, you know, one of the final things that happens in Purgatorio is his cleansing in the river Lethe, which removes all memory of sin from him. And then he, there's a, a parallel river, the river Onway there, uh, which remove or restores or strengthens all knowledge of virtue or all, you know, virtuous motivations. So, he doesn't remember any of his sins then from that point on, Okay, which narratively, he doesn't stick to all that strictly, but thematically, that's what's going on. Uh, so then we kind of see people, you know, the there's a corresponding ferryman uh, ferrying people into the shores of Purgatory, who corresponds to um, Charon in the uh, River Styx back in the Inferno. Uh, th- this time, the angel's taking people from the River Tiber, which, of course, is right around Rome. You know, so corresponding to the Vatican. And Dante sees some old friends. Uh, everybody's singing, which is great. Did you, did you notice all the different songs? He doesn't give the lyrics very often. But uh, he'll, he'll like say, then they were singing, you know, Ave Maria or something mm-hmm. like that. I didn't notice. Okay. No, I mean, I, I noticed a few, but it didn't stick with me that that was recurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, just yesterday, there was a whole pageant of people when I was reading. Oh, yeah, yesterday. we'll get to the pageant. That yeah. stuff's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, people are constantly singing in purgatory, and, and like I said, it's not like you know when Tolkien uh, gives us the whole song, as you'll experience. There's lots of songs mm-hmm. in Lord of the Rings. Uh, Dante usually just gives us the title of a song, and 
it, it, so this marks a very crucial break with the Inferno where nobody's singing. Uh, nobody's doing much of anything except just suffering. Uh, but it also serves the point of showing us that that. Uh, what these people are doing here is a pilgrimage. So for Dante's early audience or his contemporary audience, they would have instantly gotten the idea by him listing and, and, you know, the people were singing the song, the idea of them being on a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Think Canterbury Tales with Chaucer being a, a relative contemporary of Dante. Uh, so Dante wants us to get from the very beginning the idea that this is a pilgrimage. This is not a place of permanence the way it is with Inferno uh, or Paradiso, for that matter. Uh, so everybody on up the mountain, you know, that's the idea here. We're all heading up the mountain. Um, now, did you catch that they can only ascend the mountain when it is daylight out? I did not catch that. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, you can continue to ask me these questions, but I think that the answer... <laughs> If you start a sentence with "Did you catch?" <laughs> I just don't um, want to insult no, no, your intelligence. I, no, 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 no. Yeah. I almost. I, I want you to continue to ask me that. Okay, but I'm pretty sure, almost certain, it's going to be. Did not catch. Did that. not catch that. But uh, we'll feel see. Free. Just yeah. keep diving in. Uh, okay, let's, let's test me. Let's see if I can get one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can only ascend, and nobody can ascend the mountain when it is dark out. Is that explicit or That's implicit? Explicit. Yep. Uh, I forget who says it, but it's when they're in anti-purgatory and somebody says, well, if you were to draw a line here, uh, you, you know, and he draws a, you know, a line in the sand, mm-hmm. like one foot up from where they are. You could not cross that line when it's, unless the light is upon you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's the imagery of you can only ascend in the light of God. Oh, that's nice. essentially what's going on there with the metaphor. So in anti-purgatory, then this is outside the gates of purgatory. Uh, we have a few different people. We have people who are excommunicated, hanging out on the side of the mountain. Um, they get to, as long as they're repentant, they they get in. And that's another important point, is that everybody at this point is guaranteed heaven in Dante's narrative. Uh, it might take them hundreds and hundreds of years to get up the mountain, but at this point, you're, you're golden. Like You're not going to get sent back down into the inferno. You will eventually get there. So the people who are excommunicated, hanging out on the side of the mountain, outside the gate, uh, they'll get to enter purgatory and begin their suffering eventually, but for the moment, they have to wait 30 times as long as they were excommunicated. Hmm. So if you were excommunicated, Matt, for a year... And then I'm the Pope, of course, in this metaphor, and I let you back in after a year. You have to wait there for 30 years before you move up. Okay. Uh, you have the indolent who are just kind of hanging out there, the lazy, you know, spiritual, uh, just kind of chillaxing, mm-hmm. not, not in a big hurry. Uh, you have the unabsolved people who died of violence and didn't receive last rites. And then you have rulers, people who are too focused on worldly affairs, but we're repentant at the end of the day. And so all of them have to wait for various terms before they can get to the gate of purgatory. And we get to the gate of purgatory, uh, which, as you'll discover when we get to Paradiso, there is no heavenly pearly gate in Paradiso. This is it. This is the heavenly gate. Uh, oh, interesting. Yes. And so the angel's waiting there, and he gets to decide who gets let in and everything. Um, so is the uh, implication that every human has to go through purgatory to get to heaven? Yeah. Okay. I mean, as some go faster. Some probably. go faster, like uh, the one guy who gets freed and travels with them up the last few. Yeah, Statius. Statius, it? yeah. So he's freed from avarice. 
I think it's avarice, and then he just kind of gets to skip gluttony and lust, okay. and heads right on up with them. Okay, okay, yeah. So this is it. This is your way into heaven, right here. This is this is it. Okay, that's uh, great. Yeah, and I want to return to that theme in a little bit, but uh, so the angel there is the vicar of Peter. Peter, of course, being the first pope in, in uh, Catholic theology, he has the gate, uh, the keys of Saint Peter, and everything. He lets Dante in, but he draws the seven peas on his forehead. Each one will be cleansed as he ascends the mountain. Now, what's interesting as we get into the punishments, then, is that you might be thinking, all right, what's Dante got for us in the sequel? Because the <laughs> sequel is always more intense than the original. So if he really let him have it in Inferno, what's he going to do in part two? Right. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, the sufferings are brutal sometimes. But what's interesting is that Dante almost has like a disclaimer before you get to the first terrace, which is his pride. And he pretty much tells his audience, now, don't worry. I know these are going to be a little rough, but it's for everyone's correction and it's going to be okay. It's like, come on, you're the guy who just led us through the inferno and you just showed us mercilessly people being ripped apart. It might look a little bad, but it's going to be okay. But it's a great moment, you know, because he's signaling to us that, yes, there are punishments here, too, but they are very, very different. Mm -hmm. And the second one up, and I'll I'll come back to to Pride in a moment, but to continue this point, uh, the second terrorist is Envy. And uh, so the envious have their eyes sewn shut. And you Mm -hmm. think, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. But then Dante throws in this little aside where he compares it to the way that trainers back in ye olde medieval times would train hawks. Was that ravens? No. Hawks? Hawks, yeah. Maybe they did it with ravens, too. I don't know. But they sewed their eyes shut in order to train them. And so Dante throws that metaphor in for us, and I don't know what, you know. It probably wasn't the most effective training method back then. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you'd see that employed today. But Dante throws that in to show us that, no, this isn't about a gruesome punishment. This is about training. You know, this is about, uh, and there's love involved. And so Dante wants us to see these punishments very, very differently than we saw the ones in Inferno. Mm -hmm. Um, More on on that in in a a little bit. Uh, So the proud have stones on their backs. Uh, which keeps them bent down, mm. you know, so similar thing to what we saw with uh, Inferno, where it's to use Dante's Italian phrase, the contrapasta, to be punished with the opposite or to, you know, so they Whatever were, their sin exactly. was, that's uh, a, some sort of illustration of their, the anti-sin exactly. is what their punishment yeah, is. Yeah, so if the proud, you know, metaphorically would walk around with their uh, heads in the air, now they have to be stooped down. Yeah. Um, and every terrace here also includes examples of uh, humility, in the case of pride, or of the virtue corresponding to that ledge, and examples of the consequences of giving in to the sin of that ledge. Mm-hmm. You know, so like pride, we'll see um, examples of, uh, you know, the Virgin Mary or something like that, and uh, her humility. And then we'll get examples from, you know, mythology or the Bible of somebody who was prideful and wound up. Mm-hmm. Uh, going in a bad way because of it okay you know so and then we get to envy eyes sewn shut the wrathful have to walk around in a dense fog uh which is kind of an interesting one because in that case 
whereas the envy are being envious are being kept from their sins by having their eyes sewn shut the the wrathful almost have to go dive right into it because ideas of you know they're dan- they're going to be bumping into people constantly in this dense fog and they need to learn how to do it without you know going at everyone mm-hmm. uh the slothful uh again people who are spiritually lazy they just have to keep on running yeah so that one's kind of rough yeah and we're back but i'm here alone it's just me matt anderson you heard the beginning you know that we plan to make this a supersized mega show but i'll just be honest due to limitations of my laptop uh the uh the technology wasn't there for me i i honestly i don't know exactly what happened but i could not produce this four hour episode the way that i always do i just kept on hitting roblox and it got to the point where Ben's actually coming over tonight to do the next week round of episodes. So I thought, okay, I got to get this episode out. So I'm splitting it into two parts. But uh, as you could tell, that just ended right there in the end. All it, it was almost exactly four hours. So I'm just cutting it straight in half, two two-hour episodes. So when you get back to the next episode, it will just pick up right where this one left off. And I'm going to release it right away today. I, I very rarely, maybe... Once or twice in the history of the sci-fi Christian have I ever put out two episodes in one day. But this one was meant to be one big episode. So uh, if you are anxiously awaiting the second half of this conversation, well, I mean, it's really the rest. You know, I don't know exactly where two hours will cut in. I'm about to go make that edit right now. I'm guessing it'll be in the middle of um, uh, Purgatorio, and then you'll get the, the full Paradiso. So... Anyways, I'm going to hit the music. That's what's happening next. Go ahead and find part two right now. Uh, So sorry we couldn't make it a mega show, but you still will get both episodes here today. But for now, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. Ben was here. He's gone right now. He'll be back tonight. And for now, uh, we are signing off. Goodbye. Goodbye.